were doing a story about drug addiction and we didn't want to imply that this only happens to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the so other. I could have made up a character and we could have made that character die of an overdose. But it would be like those ensigns who used to uh, go down, beam down to the planet with Captain Kirk. Red shirts. This, yeah, this guy obviously exists not to survive to the first commercial. Mm. So we agreed that, yeah, Speedy was not a major character, but he'd been around for a long time. He was a solid part of the DC universe. And he was a good boy. Let's put a spike in his arm and show it can happen to anybody. Mm. Nobody is immune to addiction. I, I don't, I know that there was some disagreement about that at the time and still might, but no, if you look at the facts, it's, it's a complicated issue, but nobody is immune. <laughs> Hey, LanternCast family, I'm Chad Bokelman, and welcome to the LanternCast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. And with me tonight is... Ryan Daly. And Mark Morble. <laughs> That's right. I'm not alone anymore. <laughs> Guys, we are talking about Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 85 and number 86. I was telling some people earlier, this episode tonight is not the entire, but a huge part of the reason I wanted to do this spinoff show in the very first place. Not only is the Green Lantern Green Arrow series a historic and significant run in Green Lantern history, but in comics history, a fact I've been drilling into everybody's head since I started this show. But these two issues by themselves could be considered a historic event all on their own. And tonight, I hope to finally justify everything I've been telling you about not only this series, but these two issues. So, (laughs) with promises like that, I need help delivering. (laughs) So I brought Ryan Daly uh, from podcasts multiple <laughs> and on the fire and water podcast network and i brought the co-host from a regular show mark marble on to uh, talk about this i wanted to ask you guys right from the start what is your history with this series in particular what well, i mean we don't have to di- del- dive deep yet into these two issues obviously but what are your thoughts on the importance of this run or how did you first encounter it ryan i'll let you go first um, I've never read the series. I've never read these issues. I'm just going to be making stuff up, really. Um, <laughs> no, um, I, I mean, you know, my re- my real deep dive of getting into DC Comics is about a little bit more than ten years old now. Um, and from pretty early on, I knew of the historical significance of the series. I knew the stories in particular that we're talking about tonight were a major. You know, a, a major, as you described, a, a big milestone, not just for these characters, but in comics publishing. Um, and I think I, I wanted to 
discover these these this run by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams primarily for these two issues and the one that will follow it uh, that I assume you're doing on the next one, which introduces John Stewart. Um, so I eventually dug up uh, one of the one of the trade paperbacks that collected this whole thing, and uh, yeah, it's just it's I I think in terms of storytelling and really being not just what what O'Neill and Adams are remembered for, but kind of it does feel like this is what it was all leading up to the grounding Hal and shackling him to the, their new idea of who Ali is. Uh, as this, you know, kind of populist hero, this, you know, new kind of Robin Hood type of character. It's all about tackling these social issues. And this one really was, you know, the, the, not just the narrative climax of that, but really in a lot of ways, the, the emotional one, certainly for Ollie. So, yeah, yeah, that was kind of my, uh, you know, I, I, I got into this because I just I wanted to hear what these stories that everybody told me were so important were and whether or not they held up to it. And, you know, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, how about you? I know, you know, you and I have had traded our stories about comics introduction in the past, but how about uh, this particular series? I'm going to quote Ryan on this one. I, I've never, I never read this series. I've never read these <laughs> issues before, except I'm telling you the truth until, until the prep. I obviously I know all about these issues and what the significance of them were, but I never actually read the the issues before before the prep for the show. And obviously, I've read a. To be fair, I've read a few issues of the Green Lantern Green Arrow run, so. So that so that part really wasn't true, <laughs> but this actual but this actual two parter I've never actually read. Obviously, I've seen pages and things, but I've never actually read the entire story regarding Speedy. So I thought it, I thought it was it was an interesting read, and I'm certainly glad that I got I got to read it in general, but to be, to be able to participate in this creme de la creme episode of your show. <laughs> uh, we'll see. <laughs> I've got. Uh, listeners of, of the show know that Mark and I, when we do uh, when we do a regular episode uh, episodes with the regular issue recaps, we have a free form sort of recap and process to that recording. In this case, this is probably the most prepared I've ever been for an episode in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a ten page document with notes, synopses quotes and so on and so forth and various reference material for this episode so hopefully this is everything i want it to be (laughs) but if not we did our best and it certainly was not for lack of trying (laughs) (laughs) so i uh, i take that as if this episode fails to deliver it's our fault marks and mine i kind of (laughs) thought that might have been the subtext too Either that or he's blaming the audience, which is a possibility, too. It's your fault, people! (laughs) If you don't like it, your tastes suck. (laughs) You just don't understand my art. (laughs) That's that's right. So, um, going into this, listeners of this show know I don't have to recap in significant detail the history of the the comic book industry up until this point. So what I'm going to do is just hit highlights so you guys get the, the, the idea going into this, where the comic book industry is when these issues come out. So the whole Frederick Wortham seduction of the innocent thing happened. 
the Senate subcommittee trials on juvenile delinquency happen. As a result, the Comics Code Authority is created. Okay, the Comics Code Authority's first text and their first uh, iteration of that code comes out on October 26th of 1954. 70s come around. Green Lantern has been happening for a while. It starts to flounder. Julie Schwartz calls Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams into his office and says, hey, Green Lantern's crapping out. I need you guys to save it. So they do. And they, since it's, we've, 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 we've heard very recently on our show from people like Ron Mars and Daryl Banks, when a title is dying, that is oftentimes the best chance to do whatever the hell you want to do with it and get creative as all get out. And that is what Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams do. They take the reins and they start talking about social issues facing our world that they themselves, mostly Denny, uh, and, and a big part Neil too, but mostly Denny, have on their hearts and minds. The Comics Code Authority is edited for the first time in 1971. That's on January 28th. That's when those revisions come out. These issues are covered. This is the first issue, uh, 85, Snowbirds Don't Fly, is cover dated August, September 1971, on sale date June 24th, 1971. The second issue, cover dated October, November 1971, on sale date August 31st, 1971. And thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for those uh, notes there. <clears throat> so these issues come out after the first edits. But. Those edits were made in a large part because of this series before these issues hit, as well as Marvel Comics, which we'll get into a little bit later. But these issues hit, and it's at the right juncture, and we'll just go right into it. So, Snowbirds Don't Fly. It's written by Denny O'Neill, with pencils and inks by Neil Adams, letters by John Costanza, and edited by my hero Julie Schwartz. The now iconic cover by Neil Adams screams its importance at you from all angles. Across the top, it boasts to contain the shocking truth about drugs. While at the bottom, the publisher claims DC attacks youth's greatest problem, drugs. The cover art itself is hard to ignore, featuring Green Arrow's side kid sidekick, Speedy, hunched over in the foreground, clutching his arm at the elbow. The fixings for a heroin injection in front of him. Behind him stand Green Lantern and Green Arrow. Hal gesturing towards Speedy as he says to Oliver, You always have all the answers, Green Arrow. Well, what's your answer to that? And as a horrified Oliver looks upon his pupil, he screams, My ward is a junkie. Mark, what do you think of this cover? I love this cover. How can you not? <laughs> it's so iconic anyway, but, it, but it's just analyzing it, just imagining how you would react to it when it came out at the time. It's just... It just tells you – It just unlike so many covers which, in which we know they're BS <laughs> about what's going to be in the issue, <laughs> this just sums up perfectly what's actually going to be in the issue and the relevance of it. I mean, I mean you, could, you could make a case the shocking truth about drugs part and the youth's greatest problem part might be like hyperbole, hyperbole but – but as far as the image on the screen on the on the actual page, that that's it's just great. Ryan, what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, as Mark said, this is a accurate cover in that it, it shows something that happens in the book, except it actually spoils the very final panel of the <laughs> yes, issue. It does. True. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, obviously this is, I mean, this has become such an iconic image. It's been, you know, reprinted. It's been parodied a couple of different ways. Um, something I never really thought about, but looking at it now, I can't escape it. There is a ton of text on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, you know, you know, older comics that they, they always did, but just like everything from the banner up at the top to the fact that, you know, the, the title of the master has two different character names. You know, two different characters have speak bubbles, and then the blister at the bottom saying DC attacks use greatest problem drugs. Like, there's just so much like text and like words and everything, and yet it doesn't feel too busy. Like, it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like it's overly crowded, and it's it's because I mean the way Adams. I mean, he's just he's such a master that the way you just everybody's eyes you're drawn right to that harried look on Roy's face, and it's. And the horror of that, it's, it's yeah, this is a really, it's a great image. It's, it deserves all the praise you can give it. So, It's one of my favorite images, uh, cover images in DC Comics, as well as, of course, in, uh, in the uh, Green Lantern run itself. It's, it's bright, it's sharp and crisp, the inks aren't too heavy, and y- your eyes follow exactly where they're supposed to go. You're not mm-hmm. distracted by any one thing. You see Speedy first. You look at his face. You follow his eyesight to to uh, Oliver. The point is made, and then your eyes just flow over the rest of what's happening here. And it's really amazing. It's you know I I, I brag about it a lot, and just because it's one of my favorite uh, comic issues, I have to say I own this issue, and I got a chance to have both Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill sign it for me. So it is one of my very favorite possessions. And it's not just because it's this issue or just this historic issue or the fact that Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams signed it. It's that cover. When I look at the back issues for old, old issues and I think about whether I want to purchase it or not, part of my criteria is how good of a condition is the cover in. They could have clipped out like an ad or a coupon back in the day or something on the interior. But as long as the story is legible and I can turn the pages without them falling apart or the cover sliding off and the cover is in really good condition, it's likely a buy for me. That's part of the reason I bought this issue a long time ago when I stumbled upon it. And I love it. It's it's in one of those plastic comic book uh, frame things that hang on the wall. I love this cover. Um, So I wanted to go ahead... And go into the the recap of this issue. And forgive all the detail in these recaps. It's a little more intense than I usually do. Because, well, these issues deserve it and you'll see. Late one night, Oliver Queen is out for a walk. Absent-mindedly kicking a can down the sidewalk. As he thinks about the last conversation he and Dinah had. Lost in thought... Oliver is surprised by a group of three young men wielding rebar demanding his wallet. He easily dispatches them until one of them picks up a crossbow, loads it, and fires it into Oliver's shoulder. He collapses onto the street as couples, policemen, taxi drivers, and finally hospital receptionists alike ignore the man stumbling and crawling about. The last of which finally jumps to help as Oliver passes out in the hospital waiting room, muttering to himself about how wonderful modern civilization is as he loses consciousness. 
After he's been attended to by a doctor, Oliver asks to see the arrow that shot him, which we learn he recognizes. On his way out, he makes a call to Hal in Coast City, asking him to arrange a visit from Green Lantern to help with some trouble. Hal charges his ring and flies to Star City, where Oliver, now dressed in his green arrow gear, brings him up to speed. Then Oliver drops the critical information. The arrow that shot him was one of his. Oliver sadly admits that he hasn't seen or heard from his ward Speedy in a while, because he's been distracted by his issues with Dinah. So with Hal's help, since he is injured, he hopes to track him down. They begin in the basement of the building where Oliver saw the young men who mugged him run. The two quietly walk up on a conversation between a young man and a Mr. Browden. The kid begs him for his next fix, which he cannot afford. Browden turns him away with a heel to the head and a door in his face. As the kid on the ground crawls slowly away, Oliver explains to Hal that the kid is a junkie going through withdrawals and that Browden is obviously a dealer. As Browden comes to the door to tell the two heroes to pipe down, Oliver attacks him. Browden throws a cross into Green Arrow's wounded shoulder, while Hal steps in and takes care of the axe Browden is reaching for. Lantern carries Arrow, Green Arrow, Browden, and the junkie through the skies while Browden, taking Browden to jail and the kid to a hospital where Oliver asks him about Speedy. In another place, we see the remaining two young men who mugged Oliver and another in shadow. As they wonder about their friend and if he scored, they muse on their excuses for taking drugs when suddenly Green Arrow and Green Lantern come phasing through the ceiling. Green Lantern catches the two young men as they try to flee while Green Arrow turns on the man in shadow, his ward Speedy. He commends him for his work on the case, trying to get the pushers off the streets while the kids tell him and Lantern they'll spill the details. They fly off, leaving Speedy alone in the shadow. The group arrives at the airstrip where Browden meets his supplier and the two heroes take out the suppliers in the hangar. While they do, one of the kids grabs a wrench and knocks Hal out, while the rest of the group takes on Oliver until he's down for the count as well. They shoot both heroes up with drugs and toss some to the kids as a reward as the police arrive on the scene and everyone scatters. Speedy shows up just in time to drag the two heroes into the dark to wake up. Lantern comes to and creates a construct to help a monstrous, deformed version of himself which scares him and attacks them as Hal rings up a bubble to get them away from his drug-induced creation. Later, the two heroes compare notes and complain about missing the bad guys. While Hal muses aloud, I still don't understand why people want to poison themselves with heroin, pills, the whole sick bag. Speedy quietly pipes up. Say a young cat has someone he respects, looks up to, an older man. Say the older man leaves, chases around the country, gets involved with others, and ignores his young friend. Then the guy might need a substitute for friendship. He might seek it in junk. Oliver, oblivious as always, shakes that off as a sob story that makes him sick to his stomach as he walks Hal out. The two make plans to continue the search tomorrow, and as Oliver walks in with plans to make chili for himself and Speedy for the night, he stops in shock as he sees Speedy shooting himself up with heroin. As Speedy says glibly, who else did you think I was talking about? And that is the end of issue number 85. Ryan, what'd you think? Eh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's good. 
uh, it's really, really good. Um, do you want to address the story first or the art or either one? Uh, let's, let's, let's go with the story. Um, now the reason I say the story is because of your particular, you know, you got me and Mark as the Green Lantern folks, but you got you here as the Dyna fan. So mm-hmm. I know that you, with, with being a Dyna fan, there's a lot of Green Arrow reading you've had to done and do in your past. So let's start Her. with the story and get your, pers- your perspective. I know she comes in in the next issue, but I just wanted to get your perspective. Yeah, her publication history is very much handcuffed to Green Arrows, so you can't really you can't really escape the Green Arrow <laughs> stories. Um, yeah, I mean this is it's this O'Neill's like you know the recrafting of Ali as this type of character was was an interesting take, and I think it was it was essential to you know when the I mean, you could say this series sort of started the Bronze Age at least for DC Comics, and I kind of think that this series is the demarcation for that. And that's what I say, too, so I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, you could maybe say it's when O'Neill took over writing Justice League of America, which was like two months before the series, but basically basically that time period. Um, And, yeah, he, he does this new take on Ollie, and <laughs> reading it today, man, sometimes Ali is just an insufferably <laughs> insufferable character. And even when I agree with him, it's it's oh man, it's, sometimes he's hard to read. But at least in this in, in this first chapter, he comes off better. Um, I like the scene in the beginning when he's he's facing you know the three muggers, and of all things, he gets hit with a crossbow. Um, and the surprise and the fact that nobody, you know, the people on the street, they don't want to help him because they think, you know, they don't want to get involved in the crime. Even the cop doesn't, you know, it's just like the bad part of town or whatever. He's like, you know, I'm not, he thinks he's just a drunk or a dope fiend himself. Doesn't want to, doesn't want to get involved. He has to, he has to literally pass out in the hallway of the hospital before he'll get help. Um, so, uh, certainly O'Neill's making a commentary there. Um, it's nice that, you know, I mean, that they were in the book together. So obviously Ali needed to call Hal for help. Um, I like the, the fact that he's, he's injured himself in this one, that he's sort of like hamstrung, that he can't use his weapon so much. And there's a cool visual payoff in the next issue from that with Ali with his arm in the sling. Um, but it puts him, it instantly puts Ali in a position of vulnerability physically, that will be compounded when he's emotionally blindsided by the effect at the end, when he realizes that his ward, his sidekick, just because of neglect, because Ali had this new girlfriend that he was, you know, spending all his time with, that this kid who idolized him just felt like he was, you know, neglected. So, yeah, interesting. I, I, I'm not gonna waste too much time around it. I'll be honest. By the end of this this two issue story arc. Very few characters come off looking good. <laughs> like, I, I might actually say, I might actually say, Dinah is the only one who comes off looking good, and I think she has like ten words of dialogue total. That's why <laughs> ten words, yeah. a couple of panels. You win this yeah. issue. You win this story arc. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't mean to steer us into a, a, a different skid, but I just just because I have you on, I gotta ask. General thoughts on Dinah in this series as a whole? Um, 
You think she's well utilized? You think she's just there to be the damsel in distress? Or she frequently was. Um, like I mean, even in in the first time they introduce her, she gets bra- like knocked out and brainwashed. Um, and I'm of two minds on that because on the one hand, I don't know if anybody ever drew her better than Neil Adams, so I like the fact that he kept using her in the story in the series, but I don't think. I also don't know that Denny O'Neill did a great job writing her, but he brought her into the Justice League and made her, you know, the main female character that took over for Wonder Woman. So they wanted to use her, but it's still it's hard to look at it. It's hard to look at her as a powerful female character in the context of stories that were published 40 years ago. Um, It's just, you know, and, and DC was always a more conservative company than Marvel was. So it just even as this series is kind of, you know, was breaking barriers and telling some cutting edge stories and doing some things that had never been done before. Uh, do I like the way Black Canary is used in the series? No, not really. And if I'm being completely honest, like I don't really like Black Canary and Green Arrow as a couple. Um, I, I, I don't think they're good, but they've just been, they're so kind of married to each other from the beginning of the Bronze Age that it's it feels like you can't have one without the other. But I think they're always better and more interesting when they're apart. So, I don't know. Mark, what did you think of the story in this issue? I, th- I like the way it began. I like the fact that at first it, you kind of get just the way Ollie comes across positively and negatively. It's just the fact that he's got... Ollie obviously is this tunnel vision kind of guy, <laughs> so he's get, dealing with his own issues. So he, he's oblivious, maybe to if he had been paying attention to his surroundings, he maybe maybe he would have sensed something was about to happen before he gets mugged. But then he kind of revels in it when when the fact that they don't, you know, he gives them a chance to back down, and it's like, well, instead of me punching the wall, now I get to punch you guys <laughs> instead. And then just how arrogant he gets about, oh, like, like pardon me if I'm not afraid or I don't, I have a crossbow as he gets shot with it. <laughs> Uh, that so I, I did I did like the beginning and obviously the yes the social statements and what it was trying to in, uh, infer as he's crawling on the ground and nobody either wants to get involved or they think that he's drunk or they just don't care and all that stuff so I did like I liked all that I like the interact I like the interaction between between him and Hal they do make Hal kind of come out like, come off like an idiot not being able to figure out what cold turkey is I mean you would think that I mean you would think at least a term he would have, he would have known about but. Um, well, one thing there, just to, to, to quickly interject, is the entire series has been predicated on the fact that uh, Hal's had his head up in the clouds dealing with space too long. I mean, that's kind of what they're saying here. And because he's been dealing with these huge cosmic level threats and even mostly non-terrestrial threats, he is ignorant to things like the problems we go through with drug addiction and stuff. Not to say per se that he doesn't know of drug addiction. It's more like the way I read it is it's more like these are concepts that are foreign to him in such a way that he doesn't know how to handle it. Like he, when you explain to him, this kid's going through withdrawals and, you know, he's quitting cold turkey. He's repeating these things back to Oliver, not because he really knows – maybe he doesn't know the slang, but not because he doesn't know the situation. 
It's just Hal has no idea how to help. This is not a problem his ring can fix. This is not a problem that Hal has any experience with. And to put it in more modern terms, this is a problem that requires will, but not his. So I thought uh, when I see him doing things like this, when they come across these more terrestrial social issue threats and Hal seems ignorant or uh, uneducated on something, it's because he's being bombarded with all of these things that he can't really do anything to help. And if he can, it's not what he thinks he can do. He can't solve it by punching it. He can't solve it by flying in and saving the day. He has to figure out another way. And he has to figure out the side routes to help people out with these more terrestrial issues. I can and see, I, I can see yeah. that. I also think one of the ways that O'Neill was allowed to tell these type of stories one of the reasons was they basically kind of made them somewhat educational a little bit um, by like giving information to the audience, having more or less teachable moments um, mm. about these type of societal issues. Um, now obviously he didn't, you know, it wasn't like a PSA at the end of a kid's cartoon, you know, from the eighties, you know, he, he worked it into the narrative in a pretty good way. But for that purpose, he, he had to have somebody be, the the foil who basically needs to learn the lesson. So a lot of times he could use Hal as the guy who's like, what I what is the situation? And Ali got to explain it to him. So yeah, for most of this series, Hal is played as the I don't understand why you know the these people feel oppressed, and Hal has to or Ali has to kind of school him on you know race relations or something like that. And it's it's that's kind of just the way that O'Neill was able to tell the stories was by making. He, somebody had to be the dunce who who needed to learn the lesson. <laughs> yeah. Which is another reason this 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 uh, particular two set of two issues is important in the series. Mm-hmm. For the large part of this series up until now, Hal has been the dunce, mm-hmm. and now they're about to turn the heels on Green Arrow in a huge way <laughs> that basically puts all of the forgive the term because it doesn't exist dunceness <laughs> that has been happening with uh, Green Air, with, with, with Hal, and dump it onto Oliver in one situation that completely blows everything else Hal has been experiencing out of the water. Yeah, so. up to this point, you kind of got the impression that O'Neill didn't really want to write a Green Lantern book. He just, <laughs> he wanted to tell these Green Arrow stories and just had to put Green Lantern on the cover, too. And it's, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mark, I didn't mean to interrupt with your, okay. your, your thought process earlier. Go, go ahead with what you were saying. Your thoughts on this book. I'm not sure where I was segue-wise, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think I was talking about the relationship between Hal and Ollie. I, I right, and how, how Hal seems kind of like you know an idiot or whatever. No, I mean not not. We, we obviously have seen Hal portrayed worse than this. <laughs> true, true. But I just. That was just something that, but I do agree. I think you could, it definitely could be interpreted where he's just like kind of like in shock and, not, and, not, and having issues processing the information, repeating every, repeating everything back to to Oliver. I really like the uh, the warped the warped pre parallax <laughs> when he, when he's all drugged out of his mind and, and he tries to make a construct and it, and it comes out this really warped thing. I, I kind of like that how how it impacted his willpower and and kind of like 
morphed and corrupted his constructs. I did. I thought that was. I thought that was a pretty neat, a pretty neat touch. Yeah, I. That was. That's actually my favorite moment in this issue, um, and it, and it's it's the Hal moment. Um, and I think that goes along with what we were saying is that this is the this is the one where he kind of flips and Hal becomes a little bit better off than Ollie because Hal wills his way through this drug stupor. He, well, I mean, for the most part, he's still feeling it, but he's having these hallucinations. He's tripping out and he's able to just say, no, screw that. And just through sheer force of will, he's able to get the three of them the hell out of there to safety so that they can kind of come down and, and, and recover from that. And it's, I just thought that was a great moment that kind of shows, I mean, cause, cause I mean, this is in his blood. He is poisoned. And this is like really affecting him, you know, physiologically, like in the mind, and and his body chemistry is altered now. But he's still able to say, "No, screw it, I'm Green Lantern, damn it!" And he said, "I'll be free." And he he works his way through that. So I thought that was just without you know creating really great constructs or anything other than the, the hallucinatory one that is on page nineteen, which is great. Um, I thought it was just great that he was able to will himself out of there. Yeah, that's a good transition to talk about the art because that panel is really great too because you can see the strain slash concentration on Hal's face and the pain all in one. So, And that's just that one small panel where he's got like his hand up against the bubble and he's like really focusing as hard as he can, but you can clearly tell he's in agony. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was that was particularly well done, artistically speaking. I mean, the whole thing is well done, artistically speaking. Um, yeah, I think I think Neil Adams maybe has the unfortunate distinction of just being universally recognized as one of the best artists in the field, and because of that, it sort of gets forgotten. Um, and I, I think like the comparison that I might make, like if you like if you were talking to your friends and you started asking them like to list their favorite filmmakers, their favorite favorite directors, you know. How many of them would say Steven Spielberg? And it might not occur to them because he's kind of just so universally praised, universally known. But like, like, think how many great movies Spielberg has made. And and I, we we're also part of a weird kind of comic fandom where it seems like the more niche you get, you know, the 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 bigger your street cred. I mean, just. Hey, two two days ago on Facebook, I was called a lazy fan because I like Batman. So, you know, and and think about like people who, you know, how many people would say that Stan Lee is their favorite comic writer? Hardly anybody. But why not? When you look at all the stuff that he created, um, so I think it's it's kind of hard to talk about Neil Adams's art because it's just it's just common. You know that it's going to be great. Um, and especially this point, this was like you know the peak of his work. So it's and that's that's very evident. I'll say that because I don't. I mean, this is going to be. I mean, at least on my end, a love fest for these two issues. Mm-hmm. However, I will throw in a bit of negativity here and say that when it comes to Neil Adams, his modern stuff does nothing for me. I think oh, yeah. for the most part, uh, one of the, my big problems with his modern stuff is I think he inks his own work, and his inks nowadays. Are too heavy, and I think it ruins his pencils. And there's other issues on that, but there's I think there that's my primary reason for not liking it. In this case, now this is according to 
um, uh, comics.org and everything. It says, writer Denny O'Neill, pencils and inks, Neil Adams, letters by John Costanza and editor Julie Schwartz on, on that website. I think it says pencils and inks by Neil Adams because there wasn't an inker listed or another person listed alongside of Neil Adams, which makes them believe he inked himself in this issue, in this particular issue, which I would tend to agree with, historically speaking, going with you know, the things we've seen where, like, you know, if so-and-so was a co-writer on a script, they'd be listed as whatever on a Golden Age uh, comic. Just the way they did those creator credits in those older comics, which would include this one, leads people to believe that if there's not another person listed, then the penciler inked their own work. If that's true which I tend to lean towards the idea that it is, then this is some of the best work I've ever seen Neil Adams do. Not just because I'm part and partial to this particular comic, but because he is penciling and inking himself. And it's still this good. Yeah, I I agree with the first point that you made about his modern work. And honestly, I think that could be said of almost any artist that has that kind of longevity. Most of them don't don't have the same type of fan base because styles change. They also, their, their style changes. Sometimes their, their visual, their eyesight or their hands, their, their, they can't physically do the craft the same way. So the ones that, that can still knock it out of the park after so many years, that's, that's a rare, that's a rare thing. But yeah, certainly at this point, you know, Neil Adams in the seventies, it was like, yeah, it was like Steven Spielberg from like 1975 to 1985. Mark, what do you think about the art? I mean, I know he, now Neil did both the covers and the interiors. So, I mean, this is just top to bottom his work. Do you, you have particular favorite artistic moments or any artistic points you want to uh, direct your attention to? Uh, overall, I really enjoy the art. I mean, I, I do like this era. Neil, um, kind of like what Ryan said, how could you kind of like not like Neil Adams sort of in this in this time frame? Uh, let's see things. Let's say pages that stood out. I liked. I liked this uh, panel of when Ollie got shot with the arrow. I kind of liked the look on. It. I thought that was well done. I actually, really, I actually kind of liked the page when Oliver's calling Hal. I like that page a lot, even though it's not. It's certainly not a really an action-packed page, but I like the way Hal looks. I like the way the, even the way I, just the little, like the nuance, the way uh, Ollie's dialing and everything. Oh, good old payphones. Uh, and let's see. Um, I, I just I like the just the way the junkie is drawn going through withdrawal and different mm-hmm. and the, the, the moving towards going through withdrawal, kicking in full full bore. I like I like that little I like that transition. And let's see. Which is which is I mean uh, an artistic preview of things to come. Yes. So that's pretty cool. Those I think the, I think those were I think those I think those were the highlights and the cover of course. All right. Did you, uh, either of you guys have anything to say before we move on to 86? Yeah, one thing about the very end of the chapter, um, we get Roy's monologue because um, they're basically, you know, how, how could somebody do this? How could somebody, you know, get caught up in drugs? And Roy says, say a young cat has someone he respects, looks up to, an older man, and say the elder man leaves, chases around the country, gets involved with others, and ignores his young friend, then the guy might need a substitute for friendship. He might seek it in junk. 
Now, this goes over Ali's head. Do you think if Roy said, say this young guy's name is Ray Hopper or something like that? <laughs> it would have landed better. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think maybe he just he needed a little bit. He's like, it, it was like, like Ali's just like looking at him like, mm-hmm, uh-huh, I'm following you, yeah. I, I, it's like... Now, like, when I wink and knock and, like, stamp on my foot, are you going to get this? And, and I, I think it is funny that, at least in the next chapter, Hal's kind of like, you know, that was that was suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I think they're trying to make the point. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I agree with you. It comes mm-hmm. off, and I even say it in my synopsis, that <laughs> oblivious as always. <laughs> It's 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 there. It makes uh, Oliver look like an idiot. Uh, however, I think they're trying to make the point that Oliver is a hothead who just lost a fight and is coming off of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I think they're trying to make the point that he's that he's just he's not there right now. He's not he's having so a good focused. day. <laughs> yeah, he's so focused on this on this crap that's been going on. He's so pissed off. And he's so stoned, frankly, that <laughs> that that he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't he's he's not going to pick up on it. I, I wonder I wonder if maybe uh, uh, um, Hal recognizing it has to do with him being a little bit more even tempered, or maybe somehow Hal burned through it a little better by using his willpower to get them the hell out of there. Like, I don't know if those are the points they're making 100%, but those are things I could see them saying are the explanation behind it. It might just be that, again, Hal being the sort of surrogate for the audience is kind of like, you know, <laughs> something, something was, like, strangely on point about about Roy's description of what a junkie might be like. It's like, that's maybe he had the, the appropriate distance to say, I think... I think he might be describing his relationship with Ollie here. <laughs> He's trying to tell us something, but what? What? <laughs> oh man. Well, speaking speaking of next 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 issue, I'll talk. Go ahead and uh, talk about number eighty six, which is titled "They Say It'll Kill Me, But They Won't Say When." Not nearly as good title. Sure. <laughs> um, this one was written by Denny O'Neill, with pencils by Neil Adams, inks by Dick Giordano, letters by John Costanza, with edits by Julie Schwartz. Now, capitalizing on the drama conveyed in the first issue, this cover features our two heroes in one-fourth size in the foreground. While Green Lantern shakes his fist dramatically at the skies above, Green Arrow somberly walks towards the reader carrying the seemingly dead body of his sidekick, Roy Harper. In the background stands a massive injection needle, backed by the faces of dozens of somber young people. The caption states, More deadly than the atomic bomb, while the box at the top tells us the issue contains an important message from the Honorable John V. Lindsay, mayor of New York City. And at the bottom tells us the series is the winner of Academy Award for Best Comic. Mark, what do you think of the cover? It's certainly dramatic. I don't like it as much as the previous one. <laughs> I, I mean, if the previous one worked a little 
moving you know, the blurbs aside, if, from an image perspective, if the first one worked like on a, a little like direct, but still trying to be somewhat subtle, this one just like beats you over the head with it with that gigundo needle in the center of the page. And the more and the more deadly the atom bomb. I mean, that they're kind of they were kind of kicking the. Uh, Holy exaggeration, Batman, up to another level. <laughs> but, and, and, the, and honestly, the, even though both covers have like a, which is what, what I was going to say about 85 before, too, that the both covers kind of have that muted kind of like background, so so the images that are you know really crisp and, and are colored stand out. But I, I, I just don't think I just don't think this one works nearly as well. That's just me. Ryan. Yeah, I. I like what this is going for. I really like. I like all the the background stuff with the muted, like the faces and and kind of you know the the people who have been lost to to drugs and everything and like what they're going for. And and Ali carrying Roy is a another. It's not specific, but that is a popular motif, a popular image in comics that we see over and over and over again. <laughs> the way Hal is screaming to the heavens in the background is maybe a little bit melodramatic for this one. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do, I like this one a lot too. Um, the caption at the bottom, the winner of the Academy Award for best comic. Uh, I have a few notes on that, but we can talk about it later if you want to. Yeah, we've got some notes on this. Um, there was an awards, there were some awards given out in like five years and (laughs) for five years straight. And, uh, this series is the and the creative team was the winner of uh, recipient of a couple of different awards for this series. But yeah, we will get to that later. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is I agree with you, both of you. I don't like this cover nearly as much, and I'll tell you why. It has nothing to do with the quality of the art, and it has nothing to do with the blurbs on it, even the self-aggrandizing ones like winner of. I don't like the color of the background. I don't know what color it could be or should be. Maybe just straight black and white would have been better. I have no idea. But I don't like that clash of uh, those colors, and I don't like that particular color being like the most prominent, vibrant color on the page. Because on on 85, the background, they were inside. It was a more grayish shadow. So those colors on the front really popped. Now you got two factors here working against you on this one: the color of those, the background of, and, and those faces, and the relative size of the characters on the page. So I don't like it quite as much. And just a technical issue: when has anybody ever seen a heroin needle that looked like that? Now I'm not saying people out there are drugs, but we've all watched you know TV shows and and movies and so on and so forth. When you see people with uh, the fixings for an injection, it's always that small, thin needle, the really thin needle. Um, that needle looks like uh, on this cover looks like a hospital grade. You know, we just got this out of the pharmacy downstairs. Yeah. You know, like it's a, a large a, bore needle. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's for like it's going a, through muscle tissue. Yeah. yeah, that's 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 a large, massive, sterile needle. And the reason I point it out isn't like to say it kind of sends the wrong message. If you know what's happening now, don't, don't get me wrong. It's the message of this, this cover is extremely clear, but there's always been something about that little thin needle and the visual of it 
to just immediately suggest drugs. Whereas this doesn't do that for me. Now, we're talking about a comic from the 70s. So maybe people didn't have, were exposed to as many medical dramas or see as many fixings as whatever for, for a heroin. Who knows? I'm just saying, for me personally, that needle doesn't scream drug addiction or anything. It's just a hospital-grade sterile needle. Um, but uh, that's just something I wanted to bring up. But uh, my main problem with this cover is the, the, the color they chose to go with for the background in those faces. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, if that's uh, if you may have had the same problem with it. It's not an easy color, that's for sure. It's not a, it's not, yeah. it's not a comfortable color vi- visually. So, I, yeah, I can understand that. I think you, you kind of mentioned it. I think making that sort of solid black and white or grayish would have been better. And then it's just the greens of their costumes that are the only real color that are standing out. Mm-hmm. That might have helped. Yeah. Um, now, into the synopsis. We pick up moments after where we left off. As Shock gives way to Fury and Green Arrow backhands Speedy, claiming he's a lousy junkie. Speedy takes the blow, telling Oliver to let some more land on him if he thinks it'll make him feel better. He calls Oliver a big man who doesn't need drugs because he gets high on his own self-righteousness. Oliver kicks Speedy out, saying he's not interested in excuses or Speedy. Alone again in the apartment, Oliver starts to doubt himself thinking he's to blame for not giving Speedy enough attention, then suddenly resolves himself that it's not his fault. Speedy's old enough to stand on his own. And so his anger turns once more to the dealers as he walks out into the night to track them down by way of Speedy's junkie friends. Little does he know that the two sneak into his apartment looking for Speedy to share their spoils from last issue as they come upon Speedy's stash. Pure stuff. One of them takes it, and then clutches his heart and falls to the ground dead of an overdose while his friend looks on horrified, then runs out. Over in Coast City, Hal can't get what Speedy said off his mind and recharges his ring to go out again and finds Oliver's apartment empty, except for the dead body of a junkie. As Hal rushes to find Oliver or Speedy, Oliver tracks back. Uh, Oliver arrives back at the hangar where he's quickly discovered. Oliver takes the man out, threatening further harm if he doesn't tell him where his boss is. He does, and Oliver leaves, while the man calls his boss, revealing that this was a trap and the plan all along. Meanwhile, Hal finds Speedy in an alley where Speedy tells Hal he's a junkie. Hal offers to take him to a hospital and a doctor. Speedy refuses, so instead, Hal takes him to the one other person in Star City who can help, Dinah Lance. Oliver arrives at the pier address he was given by the pusher at the hangar and is ambushed and overcome. As the boss makes his way back onto his boat party, it's revealed that he is among Star City elite on this boat. And as the boat pulls away, the pusher's henchmen drop Green Arrow into the bay tied to an anchor. Oliver gets free and breaks the water just as Green Lantern flies overhead and takes out the men who attacked Oliver. Meanwhile, over in Dinah's apartment, Speedy is going through withdrawal, as Dinah is there to help every step of the way. As the boat of the boss, Mr. Hopper, nears the Caribbean, 
he takes a boat ashore to his pharmaceutical company, where he meets with a doctor developing new drugs for his criminal pusher enterprise. Hal and Oliver show up and take him out and destroy the dope. Later, at the gravesite of the junkie friend of Speedy that died, Speedy confronts Oliver. Speedy, who is now himself again and clean. Oliver starts to commend him as a good boy. When Speedy turns on him, Oliver didn't help. It was Hal and Dinah. He returns Oliver's favor from earlier and punches him in the jaw. Oliver, surprised, stands there while Speedy explains. I'm sharing a very small piece of the pain I've just gone through these past few days. The kind of pain thousands of kids are going through every day because an uncaring and unthinking society turns its back on them. Drugs are a symptom, and you, like the rest of society, attack the symptom, not the disease. But this symptom is worse than most. It maims. It pains. It dims you. It drives you to the edge of your insanity and over. And one day, ends your trip on a slab in the morgue with a tag around your toe. Speedy walks off, leaving Dinah with Oliver and Hal, claiming Oliver needs her more than he does. And Oliver gets tears in his eyes and a lump of pride in his throat as it dawns on him that his boy has become a man. That's the end of this issue. Brian, what'd you think? So, the previous issue ended with Roy saying, who did you think I was talking about? I really wanted this one to open with Ollie saying, I thought you were talking about Batman and Robin. (laughs) (laughs) I knew there was something about that boy wonder that wasn't right. I thought, you know, he became, yeah, I thought he became a junkie because Batman was stepping out with Catwoman too much. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up because uh, fairly recently on the show, Mark and I reviewed an issue of, uh, of Green Arrow, just a crossover that had the Rebirth era that had Hal in it. In the next issue, which ends that story arc, the very last few panels is Batman requesting Green Arrow's help. Because of this whole DC metal thing that's going on in the DCU right now. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he wants Oliver to look after Robin for him. To help him out with some stuff. <laughs> and one of Oliver's phrases to Batman is, I know how to handle teen sidekicks. <laughs> <laughs> Not well, but I know how to handle them. Yeah. I mean, Go ahead with what you're saying, Ryan. I'm sorry. No, was, you mentioned it, so I had to... Maybe if he considered this a learning experience, and he's like, well, I'll never handle anything as bad as I handled Roy being a, being a junkie like I did. Um, yeah, this is where I, I kind of mentioned, I was like, nobody really looks good in this one, because, um, yeah, Holly is... You know, for being the one who is constantly showing how all of the evils in the world... He is such a son of a bitch in the beginning of this issue. Uh, and even by the end of it, like, he deserves to get punched by Roy and everything. And he deserves to get, kind of get, like, called out. It's like, you did nothing good. Like, you can, like, Ali, Ali could fight. He could take down the drug dealers. He could go after the criminals and everything. But he's just, he was never there emotionally when his best friend needed him the most. Uh, this like surrogate son depended on him, and Ollie was just not there. And that, in a lot of ways, will come to define who Ollie is in later decades. Um, particularly, like you know, when we get to like the Mike Grell era uh, and his relationship with Dinah, and that, and then when he has his own son, 
Um, you know, like this will be Ali's immaturity and inability to handle these sort of family relationships is is a really important part of his his character in in the 80s and ni- well, in particular in the 90s. Um, Same with so, Roy. Yeah, Roy yeah. doesn't. This this is the moment. You know how there's always a moment where like you realize your parents are people too. Mm-hmm. And that kind of veneer is lost. I mean, they're still your parents. You still love them, whatever. But there's that sort of naivete mm-hmm. that clouds your perception of them is shattered. This is Roy's moment. Yeah. When anytime in anything that happens between him and Oliver, he remembers this moment, and he that's the start because there's a trust issue. There's a trust break between these two that even if they work together or trust each other on like the field of battle, Roy doesn't trust Oliver with the real stuff. And that's why his life just kind of goes off the rails for a while. I mean, yeah, go ahead. I was going to, I think, I think one of the, the, one of Roy's next appearances after this, or maybe the next time they're together, it's in a green arrow backup strip. It's either in action comics Maybe World's Finest, but I think it's when Green Arrow had a backup in Action Comics. Um, but he sees that Roy is in a rock band called Great Frog, which is a great name for a rock band in the 70s. Um, but he thinks that Roy's back on drugs. He thinks he's, because like there's a drug ring and like drug smuggling going on through the band, and Ollie thinks Roy is hooked, he's relapsed basically and accuses him of that. And it finds out that. Roy actually did do basically went undercover with this band to expose this drug ring and exactly what Ali thinks he's doing in, in the last issue was that he thought Roy went undercover to expose this thing. That's what happens the next time they're actually together. Did not know that. That has nothing to do with this issue though. That's no, not go, go ahead. I'm sorry. We, I took us down on a tangent. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, in terms of the story though, yeah, it's again, Hal Hal comes off marginally better in that he's he's like five minutes smarter than Ollie and that he realizes what's going what's going on. Um I like I, I like when uh Ollie or when Ali first of all Ali gets thrown off the, the pier with uh with an anchor, manages to free himself with the acetylene torch, Hal picks him up. I like Hal six two giant like green energy projection gorillas to attack to attack the guys on the docks. And they put them in these crates. Um, I mentioned one of my favorite Ollie moments uh, on page 21 when Hal and Ollie bust into the pharmaceutical lab to stop the the, the hopper guy and his, his lab. Ollie is holding the bow and arrow. He's got the arrow pulled back with his teeth and, mm. shoots, it, and shoots it one-handed to break the, the bottle that uh, the guy was going to hit Hal with. Um but yeah, as a Black Canary fan, a lot of this issue hinges on page 18, which is a mostly silent page of her taking care of Roy as he's going through this, which I think if you, uh, like, I think if you're basically look at this page and then like watch the movie train spotting, you'll get two very, very different ideas of what it's like to go through relapse or not relapse um detox. Sorry, and, and going through that, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting you bring that up, and yeah, how could you not? It's an important it's an mm-hmm. important uh, artistic page. <sighs> I don't like the nine panel grid. I don't. I never have. 
listeners of our show know I'm a huge fan of, of Ragman, and I promise I'm tying this in for a legitimate reason. In the post-crisis reboot of Ragman, Keith Giffen works with the nine-panel grid, as he often does in this era. And I can't stand it. There are moments where you get used to it. There are moments where like the bottom three panels will line up to show kind of like the sequence of events that it's almost like a one panel that's broken up into three. That's kind of cool. But the times I found I loved the nine panel grid most in that series of Ragman was when he did the silent panels where like Batman or Ragman are staring each other down or Ragman is doing something with his, with his suit and absorbing a soul and it's a silent moment. Those those moments spoke to me because while with the word dialogue or, or narrative bubble, you can literally tell people what's going on or tell them what you want them to think. The nine panel grid in a silent format gives the artist like untold power to s- communicate something to the reader that I don't think words could really do. And this page is completely evident of that. Now there's a couple of words here and there, but it's barely a sentence total. And I think this is an excellent use of the nine panel grid. Yeah, I actually think you could take out Roy's line in panel two and the art captures what's going on just perfectly. So mm-hmm. probably would have worked better, I think, without that. For sure. Mark, what did you think of this issue as a wrap up to the to the story? I, other than the ending of this issue, I liked the first part better overall. I, I mean, some of the, I, there was some really nice art in this issue, so I, I think there are some really cool panels with Hal, especially, uh, like, like when Hal, like on page twenty on the, the last panel when Hal's pointing, you, know, you had a nifty mm-hmm. career having you that panel with that when you, that's kind of like your, you know, almost like your classic Neil Adams Hal. There's a, uh, on page seventeen when he's kind of like got that yellowish glow in his face when he's when he talks about it speedy's the one who kind of put him on the trail to to find to help and locate oliver among other things uh i i couldn't help but think of you chad when on page 19 when literally on the same panel they have they're calling the guy hooper and hopper on the same page <laughs> <laughs> i i I did notice that. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that, I mean you really and... have to try hard to screw up to get that one because it's literally the same panel. It says, Hooper, <laughs> Hooper Pharmaceuticals, Pharmaceuticals. Hi, Mr. Hopper. <laughs> 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 but may, maybe he's using some of the products, and that's why he can't. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> that one was kind of hard to overlook. Um, let's see. Uh, I did – I. I like the end again. It was a little like we kind of joked about before we started recording the thing about about uh, the Justin Bieber looking like Speedy over there going. You might be interesting knowing that I beat my habit. <laughs> I beat my habit pretty much by himself, like in like like one night. It's like I'm clean now. Trust me. It's like I don't know. I don't know, Biebs. I'm not buying it. <laughs> that like to, to be fair though, I think that kind of almost. Even though you're trying, but we're dealing with something really serious in the storyline, but making it sound like he can get over it kind of like that quick, even though it's not, it's obviously wasn't pleasant the way it was drawn, to, you know, because it's being realistic. 
but it still made it seem like you know he got through it pretty quickly. You know, he just because he went through the detox didn't necessarily mean realistically he beat his habit, but yet supposedly he did in a short period of time, and there he is. So, so that may have kind of worked against some of the. That may not have been entirely the message you wanted to send, but I don't know. Mm. But it was it was it was good. Uh, I did like the I did like the first I like the first issue better though. Is there for any particular reason, or just just, just the progression of the story, or the I way in which pro- you I think it's the progression of the story. Obviously, you can make the case that there's more, you know, there's growth from a character perspective, which certainly in the relationship between Ollie and Roy at the end of this, or at least hinting that there's going to be more. But uh, maybe I just liked Hal's role in this issue better, in a way. So I don't know, but I just think the first issue was more powerful to me. Yeah. I agree, and I think that's it's it's one of those. I think it's an unfortunate thing. Like whenever comics or superhero stories tackle one of these real life problems, it's always really interesting to see how they dive into it. You know, the first part, the setup of it. Oh, oh my God, this you know real life issue like drugs or thinking about a Batman story. You know, like you know, child like child trafficking like or, or the sex trade or something it's affecting these superheroes that i know this is really interesting stuff but then ultimately because it's a superhero story it has to have a big climactic action payoff where you know the heroes bring down this drug ring and it's like but okay but that doesn't end the problem of drugs in our society and that's the whole point is you're you're shedding a light on this real world problem but the solution feels hollow in one sense. Um, I also just think that the climax, like Roy, you know, going off saying that, you know, he's recovered, but he wants nothing to do with Ollie. The last page is Ollie kind of like smiling while through his tears, feeling proud that his boy is a man. It's like, yeah, do you still not realize how much of this is your fault? (laughs) (laughs) See how much I helped the boy. He couldn't have done this without me. (laughs) (laughs) If I wasn't such an ass. <laughs> That's right. He could have overcome his drug addiction that I caused. <laughs> oh, wow. So. Um, but yeah, there, there's still there's some good art moments, some good action beats in this one. Um, but I, I do agree with Mark. This one isn't – it doesn't have the same emotional weight or, or shock value that the first one had. You know, I actually kind of want to get into that because uh, I did some research into this, and there was a story that I came upon that I had actually never heard before uh, in my research and my interest in this series and, and this this uh, story arc. Um, so this I got from back issue number 45, which uh, has an, uh, an article called And Through Them Change in Industry by written by a man named John Wells. Now, this is text I'm reading straight from that uh, that uh, magazine issue, uh, and I'll tell you guys when it's when I'm done reading it. But uh, this this is from that issue. The script, as originally written, has Speedy basically telling Green Arrow he beat the habit by himself. Adams remembered in comic book marketplace number forty. So this is Neil Adams speaking. Green Arrow says, "Good boy," and they walk off together. I read this and thought, no, what has changed? Somebody has to learn something. 
GA has to learn some kind of lesson. He had to learn to respect this person that he had beat up at the beginning of the story. I felt the strongest possible climax was necessary, considering how he started the story. I made my feeling perfectly clear to Denny that I thought his ending was anticlimactic, but he let me know basically it was fine as is. Well, I thought it was important enough to bring it up to the editor, who was Julie Schwartz. So I wrote two extra pages where Speedy punches Green Arrow back, lets him in on his pain, and then splits. Green Arrow, the father figure, knows the kid's right and realizes that he was an ass. This ending made all the sense in the world to me. I brought the pages to Julie and said, I honestly think this is how the story ought to end. He read them and said, go ahead and do it. And then later on in this same issue, Denny says, uh, he's, Denny explained everything in uh, Amazing World of DC Comics number four. He says, I disapprove of the implied conclusion of that story. What's implied is that a punch in the mouth solves everything. That's the end of that quote. So, as kind of lackluster as that ish, that ending of, of it kind of is, it could have been much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Ollie definitely needed to be punched at the end of the issue. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I I I feel that sometimes Neil Adams takes, and rightfully so in most cases, takes a lot of credit for stuff. Uh, happily so, <laughs> uh, in a lot of cases. But it's it's interesting reading that because then you also have the juxtaposition of Denny's own words backing that up, saying, "Well, I didn't like that ending either." <laughs> so it implies that what Neil is saying is true. <laughs> that did that was the original script, uh, and that Neil wrote that. So I do, I do like that the team of the two of them had disagreements and. That as much as I loved Denny O'Neill, that the story ended up the better for someone saying that particular piece of what Denny did I didn't like, it should be changed. So I thought that was interesting. I, I like the I like the way that collaborative process worked for a better story. Now, maybe to this day, <laughs> Denny O'Neill still doesn't like that, but I think personally speaking, it's a better ending than what what uh, Denny is saying he originally had. But so, I, but I wanted to ask you guys because it's all subjective. Do you agree with Denny or do you agree with Neil? Do you agree with Denny that it, it's implying a punch in the face solves everything? I don't think. Or do you agree with Neil that it need it needed to happen that way? I certainly wouldn't. Didn't take. I didn't take the ending as an oh the punch in the face solves everything. So I I. I think I think the end. I think it was like I think Ryan said. I think it was it was deserved. It was it was necessary. Kind of like the kind of like in Green Lantern Rebirth when Hal punched Batman, which kind of Batman deserved, and then eventually mm-hmm. Batman got him back, which maybe wasn't entirely deserved, but you knew it had. You knew it was Batman, so they had to give him his due. <laughs> so I think I yeah I don't think it was implying that. I mean, if he punched if he punched Oliver in the face, they. Oliver got up. He laughed. He he laughed at Roy. Roy laughed at him. He put his arm around him. Come on, let's go get something to eat. And the next bag of smack is on me. Then okay. Then <laughs> then, then, then maybe it implies that punching solves everything. But that's not the way I took the ending. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I I I think Adams is 
Adam's conclusion to the story was better. Um, I don't think I didn't read it as a punch solves everything. Maybe that was the conclusion that O'Neill came to. But and I I can sort of see how he got that just because by the end of it, Ali seems to be saying, yeah, he's he's he can get you know he can he's buried his demons and he can stand up for himself. My little guy's a man. But you could also see, you know, the, the tears coming in from his eyes and the stupefied grin on his face. Maybe Ali has a concussion and he doesn't know <laughs> what he's saying because he looks like an idiot. Um, <laughs> Oliver is in concussion protocol for the next issue. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a bit about the origin of this particular story. Um, the origin of the comic series is, as I said at the beginning of the episode, pretty simple, you know. Green Lantern's dying, Julie Schwartz hands it off to the team of Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, and they have free reign. <clears throat> As for this story, I interviewed Neil Adams a while back um, for this show. Uh, both Denny and Neil. I've interviewed Denny twice and, and, and Neil once. And in that interview, Neil told me the story of how this particular uh, story art came about and its connection to what was happening at the time. For those of you unaware, and Neil will mention this in the audio I'm about to play for you guys, <clears throat> the way it worked was at the time, Marvel Comics had a story in which Harry Osborn pops pills. That story was put before the Comics Code Authority and rejected. So Stan Lee took it over to his boss, said, I want to do this, and I want to publish it without the Comics Code. And he said, sure. So that particular issue of Spider-Man was published without the Code's approval. And um, I'm just going to go ahead and play that audio. Keep in mind, folks, this is uh, older audio from uh, one of the first episodes of uh, this spinoff, and it's taking place during a convention on the floor with a subpar recording <laughs> instrument. So you can hear everything Neil says, but I'm just forewarning you, there's going to be a bit of background audio. I knew all this stuff because the city of New York had asked uh, Denny and I, or through our editor, to present a project against drug addiction. So we went to Phoenix houses and we talked to junkies. A lot. Well, over a few days. Anyway. And they laughed at all our, our stupid assumptions that were totally wrong. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we both presented synopses for a, a drug addiction uh, book, which they rejected because obviously we were too liberal or whatever. Maybe through Green Lantern, Green Arrow, we could do a drug thing. Yeah. So I did that cover and handed it in. Julie Schwartz dropped it like a hot potato. Everybody dropped it like a hot potato. You can't do that. Meanwhile, I go over to DC, uh, over to Marvel, and Johnny Romita pulls me aside. He says, "You know what Stan's doing? He's doing this guy who pops pills and walks off a roof." Really? Harry Osborn? Yeah. yeah. Walks up a roof. I said, Stan doesn't really know too much about drug addiction. I don't think anybody walks up a roof after they quote pop pills. Usually they get paranoid and crawl up in the uh, crawl up in the corner. But 
I said, that's that's interesting. What's what's going on? Well, they sent it over to the Comics Code, and the Comics Code rejected it. So what's Stan going to do? He went to his uncle, who ran the company, and he said, I want to run this without the Comics Code seal. He said, yes, sir. He said, go ahead. <laughs> he said, go ahead. Who gives a crap? He ran it. So I come back two weeks later. I go see Johnny. Johnny, what happened? Johnny says, nothing. It went out. Nobody said anything. Nobody even noticed. They didn't notice it. Nobody. Out at DC Comics, the place is exploding. Why? Because they had that cover there. They could have done something, and they blew it. And Harry wasn't popping pills on the cover. And Harry wasn't popping Oh, no. Was, shit was happening on the cover. So what do they do? They have a meeting of the of all the publishers because all the publishers had this self-regulating agency that was the Comics Code. So they, within a week, they rewrote the Comics Code, and we started doing that book. Then he went off and did a script, and we started doing that. So, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> Almost, just a little late. No, it's like so close. <laughs> it's unfortunate. Uh, I. I I did, I have read the you know the Harry Osborn doing drugs thing um, that storyline so yeah I mean what can you tell us about that I personally haven't read it's it been a while. I've seen the, I've seen I've seen the main page of that but you get this you get the sense that it's a very nebulous drug like Stanley has no idea what drug it is it's just that Harry took some pills that made him act weird like it wasn't making any particular point or putting out any particular drug it was just and even peter supposedly on the page i on the one page i read is like oh man you took some like he's not freaking out so it's it's kind of weird in the way it's making its point if it's making a point at all so as somebody you i mean you need to know it said said it's been a while it's been a long but yeah, it's I, been a long time since i read that issue okay uh, i just I, I, I think I remember. I think I remember it partly because that because that ended up becoming so so much of Harry Osborne's issue as being such a how should we be, how should we phrase it? Harry, Harry wasn't Harry wasn't the most uh, well held together character, <laughs> and understandably so when your father's the Green Goblin and treats you like shit all the time. Even before, but still. <laughs> But you know, but but even the thing with Peter and Mary Jane, and because how you know Peter and you know Mary Jane was supposed to be Harry's, and it didn't work, so it it just became so ingrained as part of Harry's character that he was so drugged out, and I just and I kind of I'm trying to remember was that issue or not when 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 Harry I think it might have been when when Harry was just so drugged out of his mind and he was calling out to Peter or whatever, and Peter just kind of like blew him off and said I don't have time for this and just kind of like walked out and left him, but it's. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I would. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was. I was gonna say I, I. I read it too. Again, it was. It was also a long time ago. I don't remember that being like the major thrust of the story, the way this one is. Um, and I. I also, you could say, I mean, Marvel did beat them to the punch with their story about drugs, but I definitely think DC did it better yes, so yes. maybe maybe waiting a little bit longer helped them craft the story and and do a better job with it um, but I mean I don't know I mean they you know they weren't writing it off the cuff because like you they in the the story like they they had done their research they had interviewed they they knew what story they were gonna do um, so you know I mean 
the cover to Amazing Spider-Man 96 is not an iconic cover that gets reproduced, no, you know, every year. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention because you know Neil mentioned that meeting that took place. Um, when I spoke with Denny O'Neill uh, for the first time with 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 Jim uh, Jim Ford, one of the founders of the Lantern Cast, uh, back on episode 97 of the Lantern Cast, Denny talked about that first meeting and how all that went. I just wanted to replay that audio for you guys here. There was a, uh, a meeting that the guy who was doing the comics code called, and I was asked to attend. I don't exactly know why. I, I mean, there was, there was undoubtedly a reason. Um, they've had something to do with ACPA, the Academy of Comic Book Arts, which was still going on, and I was one of, uh, you know, uh, one of the board members or whatever, one is with organizations. Anyway, I went to meeting with Stan, and I, I maybe Carmine was there, uh, the Comics Code Authority guy, and Stan Solution, which was adopted by DC in later years, was simply to do that one issue with no uh, Comics Code seal of approval, just the one issue. Uh, we didn't anticipate any problems, and we had them. They asked Beale to change a shot in the uh, sequence. I think it's a three-panel sequence where Speedy is shooting up so that we don't show him actually putting the needle in his arm because there was a provision in the comics code that said that you cannot show in detail how a crime is committed. Well, okay, shooting heroin into your vein was a crime, still is. Uh, it's a little hard for me to believe that a junkie would have to learn from a comic book how to do it, but, uh, and then, you know, the, the topping irony was that it was on the cover. So, Denny says this, and this is, this is years ago when Gemini interview him for the first time. This is kind of the point where my idea for this podcast comes up. And it's not just covering the series, but also covering how this comic series had an impact on the Comics Code Authority and the history of comics in general. Because later on, when I interviewed Neil Adams... For the second episode of this, this spinoff series, one of the things Neil says to me, and I won't play it here, but if you can go back and listen to it if you want. <clears throat> one of the things Neil says is that once the code had been rewritten, the fangs were out. It may have taken until, I think it was 2011, that the comics code finally died. But once, it, once this battle had been won, the fangs were out. And the comics code wasn't the enforcement division for comics that it was. And I've been saying all along, those campy stories you get in the 50s and the 60s with Superman and Batman and blah, 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 that's the comics code. Those are the stories they had to tell because of the comics code. So when the comics code dies for the first time in the early 70s, Again, it didn't officially die until 2011. This series and what Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams did is a huge, not the only, I'm not that naive, 
a huge part of the reason the comics code fangs fell out. And that is the reason you get things like Batman Year One or The Dark Knight or Watchmen or Swamp Thing. I mean, just the Hellblazer, all of that stuff. You wouldn't have those groundbreaking comics without this series. And there's a reason I I bring this up, because this is probably the last time I'll do it, because this is, like I said, the fangs are out. But I wanted to bring up the comics code, both the original and the revision, because the comics code um, has a bunch of provisions, and Denny mentioned it in in that quote I just played. Um, In the first version, adopted in October 26, 1954, General Standards Part A says several things. Crime shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust of the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire to imitate criminals. Mr. Uh, Hooper? Hopper? Hooper. Just think think Jaws, it's Hooper. (laughs) Mr. Hooper? has a massive boat, his own pharmaceutical company, and is hobnobbing with judges, mayors, and affluent people. He is a heroin dealer. I would say that's a criminal with a position and a... Uh, you don't want to create sympathy, sympathy for a criminal or promote distrust as forces of law and justice. He's on a boat with a judge. And another side of this coin, one of the first things that happens in the story arc is a policeman basically kicks Oliver inside and says, go sleep it off, buddy. Okay. No comic shall explicitly present the unique details and methods of a crime. That's what Denny talked about. Showing a kid shooting up heroin, unique details and methods of a crime. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for the established authority. Policeman kicks Oliver aside. Judges are drunk on a boat with a dope dealer talking about, you know, those wasteoids, essentially, talking poorly about some of their subjects who are hooked on dope. If a, crime is to de- if a crime is depicted, it shall be a sordid and unpleasant activity. This one's a little bit of a stretch, but I bring it up for a reason. They specifically show the high that you get with drugs. Now, it's right before a dude clutches his heart and falls to the ground dead. But they do show it in such a way as it's fun. They do talk about speedy himself says he goes to this as a way to cope with feeling abandoned. He talks about it in such a way as, at the start at least, it was something that could distract him from his pain. Criminals should not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. This is what I was talking about earlier. Mr. Hooper? Ridges all get out, pharmaceutical company, hobnobbing with the bigwigs. Beautiful woman on his arm. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil and criminal punished for his misdeeds. Mm, Yes and no. For the most part, yes. 
this is an issue. This is a, something that's kind of broken more in the earlier and later issues of the series. Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gunplay, physical agony, gory, or gruesome crime shall be eliminated. Another bit of a stretch here, but we see a kid die of an overdose. We see kids on floor in on the floor in agony, going through withdrawal symptoms. Now it's not violence, but it's certainly intense. All elements in part C, all elements or techniques not specifically mentioned herein, but which are contrary to the spirit and intent of the code, are that and are considered violations of good taste or decency, shall be prohibited with regards to dialogue, profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have uh, acquired undesirable meetings are forbidden. We didn't mention it, but in the first issue, didn't that one kid say the N-word? Might have been the second That issue. happened. Was, that, was, was that, it, that the second issue? I thought it was the second. No, it was, issue. A, was it the first? It was the first issue. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, racial epithets, let's just say, that are thrown, in, thrown mm-hmm. in that conversation. And even if they're used correctly in the correct context – it's still used in such a way that is supposedly forbidden. Although slang and colloquialisms are unacceptable, are acceptable, excessive use shall be discouraged, and wherever possible, good grammar shall be employed. I always include this one because it's a comic from the 70s. <laughs> it's hard not to see all of the modern slang of the era in these comics. Uh, and then religion, uh, ridicule or attack on a religious group or racial group is never permissible which is the exact same as it was in the 1971 version. That's calling back to the kid using the epithets. <clears throat> now, the version adopted in January 28, 1971, I'm not going to read verbatim like I just did that other one, but you can see by comparing the updated versions of these particular uh, original rules from 1954 that those rules still, for the most part, largely apply, but have a lot of if-thens and stuff tacked onto them. And even in the parts where it still seems pretty rigid, look at these updates and then look at the comic we just read. Even in these updates where those rules seem rigid, we still got this comic. So I wanted to point that out because... Even though it was updated before, and it's the reason that this comic was published with the Comics Code Seal of Authority, it's still going against the code. But the code put it out anyways. I just wanted to bring that up. I don't know what you guys have to say on the subject. I've been talking about the Comics Code Authority and their rules and regulations and how each issue of this series has broken those one and over and over again. But this is the last time I wanted to bring it up because, as I said, as Neil said, the fangs are out after this. So even though the comics code is present, the damage has been done, and it's not as biting as it once was. But I wanted to see what you guys thought about it. I know I kind of threw a lot at you there, both with the code dying, the, the, the stuff that this, uh, the, that, the code, that this comic went against in the code, The comics we got afterwards is a result of the uh, comics code losing its fangs, but uh, I just wanted to mention all that and see what you guys thought. Um, I think it's 
I think the uh, it was important that the I mean it was critical that the code went through this revision at this time and as as you mentioned became kind of toothless or or the you know the fangs were out and everything I think it had to happen around this time and even though like it it wasn't like all at once like all in a rush you know you've got you know from from this book to you know watchmen and things like that you know we're still talking about you know 15 years between those two things um but you would start to see changes you would start to see more adult sophisticated material you know uh, you know pushing the boundaries of things but they were they were slow and incremental but i think the fact that they did start to happen and that you had stories like this basically like the whole the whole series like the the breadth of the o'neill adams run on green lantern green arrow i think if this hadn't come around at this time and hadn't done stories like this i i mean you would have had i mean like i said i think this is really the start of the bronze age for dc and if this hadn't been there then you would have kept on going with the silver age and every threat would have been an alien or some kind of interdimensional imp that speaks backwards riddles or something and and i think if that had gone on much longer i don't think superhero like you know there was a gr- degree that you know the the genres of comics were kind of cyclical and the superhero has become the predominant one for decades and decades, but maybe it wouldn't have been. Maybe superheroes would have taken a dive again, and there would have been more comics in the 70s and 80s about war and horror and Western and romance and science fiction and other, you know, things. And, and maybe, you know, maybe these, these superhero characters would have gone through another, another dip in their popularity like they did in the post-war years. Um, and, and that might have had, that might have, you know, rewritten the entire landscape of what we see of as, you know, the superhero fiction. And then we probably wouldn't be talking about this at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate your clarification on that because I didn't mean to imply that it immediately happened after the mm. series, um, that all that stuff, the groundbreaking comics work came out. I feel like what I'm... And I appreciate what you said is what I meant to to insinuate, but I feel like that Stan Lee story in Spider-Man kind of showed that there was a weakness in the door, and then this series opened that door, and Denny and Neil were the first ones to walk through. And I feel like the the the, the slow build to those groundbreaking series was as a result of this series, you know, people are like, oh, Denny and Neil walk through there. They're like, people kind of doing the hesitant, like, can, can we go? Is anybody going to stop us? Like, kind of tiptoeing through the door. Oh, we made it. Shit, that was cool. Maybe we'll try it again next time. Like, that kind of a thing. This The, the slow build, I, I agree with you 100%. But it, it started here, is my main point. Uh, Mark, what did you think of all that? I think exactly what you guys are talking about, that it it basically it set the precedent. It set the precedent, and maybe 
probably based on the way society was going, I kind of looked at it more that maybe it was inevitable that you know the the comics code wall was going to start come, come crumbling down. But these were like the first blocks of the wall that were taken out, the first bricks that were damaged, and then before you know it, once it was revised, and obviously lost a lot, lost a lot of its teeth. And it kind of it's interesting when Ryan was talking, it made me think of something too that because because of the because of the change, not just the change potentially in the code, but just the change of the view in comics in general, and just the fact that it, that it wasn't as rigid. Because you look at just this thing about because he talked about you know horror comics and actually that, the 70s at least the 70s was actually pretty big for horror when you think about it, especially in Marvel. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So that kind of that, that so the weakening of the or the you know, the decapitation of the of the of the comics code very well probably opened the door for where again you could go back into those areas where you didn't have to worry about you know the whole like McCarthyism aspect of where you had to you had to be careful what what you portrayed and this that and the other thing because look how big you know you know Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night and all that, and Frankenstein mm-hmm. and all those and all those and that's what when Ryan was talking that's what made me think that that was in for Marvel that was a Certainly, like in the mid '70s, anyway, that was a big, ch- that was a huge market that they tapped into, and it's pretty, po- it was pretty popular. And even if you look at DC, I mean, uh, and actually, Chad, we talked about this with in another issue, in another issue uh, episode, I should say, uh, with all that the '70s were pretty big at, at DC too for the same thing, but unex- you know, Tales of the Unexpected and House of Mystery and all those things, and House of Secrets and all those. Things and time warp and, and all those things as you started heading into the 80s. So, yeah, I think I think it it just opened it opened the floodgates and it opened it, it allowed a lot more creativity and people could tell a lot different a lot more different a lot more interesting and creative stories and in different ways too. And you didn't have to just make and you could take more risks and you could basically quote unquote tell more adult stories just like that. Just like you think about the '70s, that was a big time for like the the magazines, right? With you know, with Conan and mm-hmm. and all the black, especially all the black and white magazines that that even that could be a hell of a lot more daring than you know what was being published on uh, on the shelf, uh, in, the, in the regular racks. So that's so that's what I even as being very little, but that, I even, I even kind of remember all that with the with the magazines and so yeah, I think I. The, there's no doubt that, that these stories, not just because of how well they're, they're, it was written. But even just you know in the content itself, but what it meant, and it was kind of like a growing up for the industry. You know, it was kind of like graduating and moving out or moving up. And I think that's that's probably one of its enduring legacies. I think. For sure. I, cons- yeah, considering I have a podcast about DC horror stuff, I should <laughs> know the exact specifics. But I think before the implosion, DC had six or seven. They weren't monthly. They, most of them would have been bi-monthly, but bi-monthly horror comics going regularly at the same time. Like seven different horror comics, like House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Tales of the Unexpected. It's uh, you know twelve o'clock or it's midnight. The Witching Hour, yep. Ghosts, Swamp Thing, and Phantom Stranger. That's like seven books right there. And yeah, those were all being coming out right around the same time. And and yeah, I mean th- that could have been. That could have been the Downer thing, or we might have seen a more. I mean, the the war books hung around for a long time until right around the crisis. Um, but uh, and the sci and the yeah. sci fi and the sci fi books too, with like mystery and sp- mm-hmm. like uh, was it mystery in space or something like that? Yep. And obviously yep. time warp, which I kind of liked. Time yep. warp it didn't. I mean, it didn't last that long, but they had they were they were. 
I, I, that's actually, that's actually the stuff in the late, the maybe the late seventies, early eighties. That was most of the DC stuff that I read. It was, so that was, it was, and it was, quick anecdote. It was complete luck of the draw. Too, I was sick one day. My mom just went out and she bought a bunch of comics, and the, and the ones that she got from DC were like the, you know, the jumbo dollar size ones, which were great value back then. <laughs> uh, the, and one of them, I mean, I still remember that, and I have it somewhere downstairs. The tales of the, Unex- you know, tales of the unexpected, and that's when I started getting into, you know, House of Mystery and. Um, and things like that. So yeah, those were big, and a lot of those things. Yeah, you, many many different genres and stories that were told. Probably that that was also a at, maybe at the time it was not an un, maybe an unforeseen benefit that was going to happen, but it did open the door for revisiting a lot of a lot of genres that there obviously was a market for. But you had to be careful what you how you represented the material based on what you could show and what you couldn't show. So. For sure. One thing I don't, I don't want to take uh, the wind out of the sails here on this topic, but I did want to say uh, another thing. Uh, when I was reading that back issue, um, magazine uh, issue, uh, number 45, <clears throat> there was a quote that jumped out to me because I didn't mention it in the synopsis, but in 86, when we meet the boss, Mr. Hooper, and he uh, boards this boat he says, oh, hey, judge, I didn't know you'd be here or whatever. And then the judge refers to uh, the filthy, dope-swilling beatniks. So evidently Denny was trying to make a point there, too, that amidst all this drug talk kind of got lost in the shuffle. So I'm just going to want to read this. He says, <clears throat> at, one point, O'Neal Peel, uh, at one point, O'Neal penned a cocktail party scene where the wealthy parties decried filthy, dope-swelling beatniks, he noted in Amazing World of DC Comics number four, that, we're trying, that we were trying to be subtle, and we were so subtle, nobody saw it. In the cocktail party scene, we implied a condemnation of alcohol addiction, too, but nobody evidently paid much attention to that. So in this huge, massive drug story, they're also making – they're like, hey, let's throw in <laughs> – hey, these, uh, these people just partying over here, they also have a problem. <laughs> so I like that – I like that it's not – you know, they're, they're making the point here in this comic by using Speedy. And this is something that was mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, is mentioned in the feedback – uh, from readers at the time in the letters page, so on and so forth. But the mention by Denny himself, Neil himself, they use Speedy for a reason. Because it shows that anybody is vulnerable. And I love that Denny includes this small little piece that nobody ever really caught on to. Really showing that, oh, there are multiple forms of addiction, and really, really anybody can be affected. <laughs> So I thought that was cool. It was. That was cool. Um, <clears throat> well, because, one thing I wanted... because that's an acceptable form of addiction, <laughs> if you <laughs> true, will. True. Based on based on society's norms, that that is an ex- that it doesn't make it really right, but it, it is an acceptable for <laughs> drug use of drugs. You know, in a controlled setting, that's that. There's your quintessential example is is alcohol. So, for sure. Um, we, I did want to mention, uh, before we start to, to wind down here in a minute, I did want to mention the Shazam Awards. 
And I guess I'll include that sound effect for Ryan's sake, but whatever. Yeah, just just say the just say the name again. <laughs> Shazam! <laughs> Uh, this is already gonna be. And maybe every time you you say Hooper, we can uh we can play a clip from play a clip from Quint from Jaws singing farewell and adieu, my fair Spanish ladies. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Hooper. Good, good playing with yourself, Hooper. <laughs> I learned from Ryan Daly's Secret Origins podcast that you know the the less you do the sound effect thing, the more funny it is when it happens. <laughs> like the whip. <laughs> Uh, anyways, um, the Shazam Awards. Ryan, you said you had an anecdote about it. Do you, do you want to, do you know much about this before I launch into what these were? Or? Yeah, well, I mean, you can give the, the sort of context for what they were, and then I'll just kind of jump on that after you're done. Yeah, so the, the Shazam Awards, um, what they are, is there a, a series of awards that were presented by the Academy of uh, Comic Book Arts, uh, and they were given between 1970 and 1975, for outstanding achievement in the comic book field. With regards to this series, it won in 1970 and in 1971. Uh, I don't know if your anecdote includes the specific winners, but you want me to go over those? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So in 1970, uh, the winners, Best Story, No Evil Shall Escape My Sight by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams and Green Lantern, Green Arrow 76. That's the first issue of the series, the whole... You've done a lot for the purple skins and the green skins, but what have you done for the black skins issue? Um, Best drama penciler, Neil Adams. Best drama writer, Denny O'Neill. In 1971, best individual story, Snowbirds Don't Fly by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 85. And best penciler in the dramatic division was Neil Adams. Yeah, so then the, uh, as we kind of mentioned it, the cover of issue 86 features is it 86 yeah yeah sorry uh the cover of issue 86 on the bottom corner says winner of the academy award for best comics that was referring to the first award that it won for no evil shall escape my sight um because at that point that would have been awarded a few months before this one came out um but actually it's funny because the previous issue issue 85 also won the award the following year um and do you know what story uh, the second one, Snowbirds Don't Fly, beat that year? No, I don't, actually. Something else was nominated that a lot of people thought possibly deserved to win, and it was the first Swamp Thing story by the late Len Wein and also the late Bernie Wrightson. Gosh, they both died this year. Um, it was their short story, Swamp Thing, from House of Secrets, issue 92, they both were kind of like nominated and both were kind of like the, the front runners for that award. It ultimately went to the Green Lantern Green Arrow one, possibly because it was a full length story and they thought it just it deserved it. The the praise was better. But after that year, in subsequent years, um, like from basically seventy two onward, there's a best, you know, dramatic story award, also a best short story award. Mm, they for that very created, reason, they created a new category so something like that Swamp Thing story could win. Um, and then in the following year, uh, it was the story called The Demon Within, which I reviewed on episode one of Midnight the Podcasting Hour by Jim Aparo, uh, won the short story award. And it was the first issue 
of Swamp Thing, the ongoing series, won the award for Best Drama Series and also Best Writer and Best Artist. So Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson basically picked up where Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams left off in this, basically in these categories. That's, I did not know that. Same time as the first Swamp? That first Swamp Thing, is she, that story is really freaking good, though. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, it's basically... But, big. <laughs> as much as I love this series and everything, like even I find myself going, yeah, between the two, like which one? <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so, so Chad's next podcast will be the Swamp Thing. <laughs> no, somebody else is doing that actually. The, the Swamp Man, right? Is that what he's doing? Yeah, Ben Avery from Comic Book Time Machine has a has a sort of semi regular feature called Muck Men or Swamp Monsters that it's uh he he covers those. Um, yeah, I wish he would do it more regularly, but. Uh, yeah, he's, he's got a lot on his plate. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's very interesting. I did not know that. Um, so what we're going to do uh, is real quick, we're going to go ahead and take a brief promotional break. And when we come back, I will be by myself for just a few moments as we talk about the letters pages, the public reaction from these comics from you, the reader, back in the 70s. So when we come back, we'll discuss those letters page. And then when we wrap that up, we'll come back with final thoughts from Mark and Ryan and where you can reach them. To tell you the story of Green Lantern is to tell you the story of the birth of a universe, the origins of DC as a whole. It's a magic emerald meteor from space in the 1940s. It's the establishment of the JSA. It's the birth of the Silver Age. It's the introduction of a universal police force. It's the formation of the JLA. It's the emergence of the multiverse. It's a crisis in both space and time. It's an emerald dawn. And it's an emerald twilight. It's the brightest day. And the blackest night. And the Lantern cast covers all of this and everything in between. We're Green Lantern's greatest advocates and fiercest critics. We've been fans for years, and it's the reason we're self-proclaimed Lanternologists. So find us on iTunes and Stitcher, and give us a listen. Because the history of Green Lantern really is the history of the DC Universe. And we've got the interviews, commentaries, reviews, and more to back it up. Alright guys, we are back from break, and uh, this time uh, out, of course, like I said before, I am alone, and I'm going to be reading the letters page with regards specifically to Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 85. Now these letters were printed in the back of Green Lantern, Green Arrow number 87, which actually gives us the first appearance of Jon Stewart, Um, but just because of uh, scheduling and everything and when those uh, letters are received, uh, obviously it would, it would be reprinted in that issue. So there's actually three pages of letters pages. And I just really, for uh, completion's sake, for being 100% accurate, wanted to provide those to you guys here. So I'm going to read those in full. And uh, excuse me if I uh, make any mistakes here in reading it. I'm just going to uh, work my way through. I'm not going to edit this particular portion. I just want to make sure I'm um, reading these in their entirety. All right, first letter. 
Dear Editor, you'll probably receive a number of accolades and a heartening series of congratulations for your efforts in putting together Green Lantern 85, Snowbirds Don't Fly. What you should really get, and what you truly deserve, is thanks. I wonder if you have any realization of what you've been able to do. In recent months, many media, the most notable of which is television, have tried with varying degrees of success to make the public aware of the increasingly spreading moral cancer known as drug addiction. For the most part, these attempts have been feeble, pretentious little morality plays, 20th century versions of The Drunkard, complete with all the melodramatic conventions but being devoid of any true feeling of life. To the reader, listener, viewer, they parallel the sudden rain shower which is forgotten when the sun appears moments later. This blanket criticism is not true of Snowbirds Don't Fly. Who could close the pages of GL85 after reading the story and try to pretend that, quote, it's all so far away from me? Who could remain the same person after viewing the very graphic scenes of tragedy and reading the prose of misery? One area of the story deserves a special comment and praise. While similar attempts at shining some light on the drug addiction problem have tossed around terms like alienation and generation gap, you've hinted at some of the more direct reasons behind the existence of pushers and their willing customers. Many times we've been shown good kids who have entered the drug culture only to escape and have everything turn out fine in the end, with some time left for a further word from the sponsor. Contrast that unreal, plastic world to the seeming, to the seamy, ugly one that Snowbirds presents, and you'll see that you've told it like it is to a number of young people who may one day thank you for the absence of a needle mark on their arm. The Snowbirds Don't Fly was the graphic story's second attempt at dealing with drug abuse. I sincerely hope that there will be more stories of this caliber. You owe it to your young readers to speak a quiet, though shockingly direct truth. I also harbor the hope that GL85 and its sequels will break comics magazine rules and go into several printings for use in drug rehabilitation centers, hospitals, and schools. You can be proud of what you've accomplished and rest assured that, though their voices may never reach your ears, a multitude of grateful human beings is saying thanks. John Workman, Aberdeen, Washington. And the note from Julie Schwartz, the editor. Here, obviously, is one reader who knows how a workman-like job knows a workman-like job when he sees one. So heavy was the mail on Snowbirds that we are breaking precedent to present a three-page letter call in order to get in a fair percentage of varying reader reaction. Here's the next letter. Dear editor, I've just finished reading Snowbirds. Don't fly. The plight of drug addicts has been presented to the public in various manners through the media, but not one of those presentations has scared me more than Denny O'Neill's shocking story. Yes, I am scared. Scared for the untold number of unfortunate souls who have turned on to drugs. Scared also for a friend of mine who I fear is involved with dope. But imagine, one of DC's superheroes being hooked. My first impression was that Mr. O'Neill has finally gone too far, but this later changed. What better way, pardon the expression, to drive home the point than to show Speedy as a junkie? Maybe Denny was right. Maybe he shouldn't have told about about Youth's greatest problem in an entertainment magazine. 
Yet it has been established that comics magazines are a very effective means of education, and by God, if the readers of issue 85 weren't educated or at least hadn't had their uninvolved eyes open to the horrors of addiction, then the whole frightening impact, the whole ugly mess, was lost to the thousands who experienced this tale. I'd like to commend author O'Neill, artist Adams, and you, dear editor, for such a fantastically realistic story. But I'm sure all three of you would brush aside all praise for merely doing your duties as enraged citizens. Bill Hop Jr., Long Beach, California. No comment from the editor. Next letter. Dear editor, believe it or not, I'm not surprised. As a matter of fact, I expected you to do a story on drugs such as the one you presented in the 85th installment of your magazine. How was I, wonderful as I might be, able to calmly anticipate a story calculated to shock your readers? It was not clairvoyance, I assure you. I merely glanced at my surroundings, and everywhere I glanced, television, newspapers, school, I saw the drug problem being examined. Then I looked at your magazine and observed that it was focusing on current themes and that it was always moving, never resting on the same topic. It is this movement, by the way, that keeps GLGA a step, in fact, several bounding leaps ahead of its competition and renders it impossible to imitate. Under these circumstances, it was inevitable that you would eventually consider a story that dealt with drug abuse. The only question being whether or not you had enough guts to go through with the thing. When I looked at your staff, Julie Schwartz, editor, Denny O'Neill, writer, Neil Adams, artist, nope, no lack of guts he, no, no lack of guts there. The result was a magnificent piece of work entitled Snowbirds Don't Fly. Naturally, an editor of your experience knew well in advance that certain individuals would oppose this issue. Some, no doubt, will argue that our mag should contain only pure entertainment, but they forget that entertainment can take many forms. To me, the most entertaining comics result from letting the writers do stories that they feel they really feel like doing. Thus, John Broom was at his best writing science fiction type stories, and Denny O'Neill is at his best writing stories that deal that deal with the ills of our society, such as pollution, drugs, etc. It's obvious that Denny really wanted to write Snowbirds, and because of this, the story was very convincing and interesting. It contained a beautiful blend of action and dialogue that kept me intrigued throughout. Therefore, I feel this issue definitely was entertainment, even if the reader failed to grasp the moral message, though this scarcely seems possible. Now, however, you will run into some folks who will admit that the story was entertaining and worthwhile, but will say, Okay, Mr. O'Neill, we know you are a great writer, but please don't write up to you the best of your ability, or your stories will be beyond the grasp of our precious ten-year-olds. On the other hand, my attitude is, go ahead, Denny, lay all of that incredible talent on us. I really don't think 10-year-olds want to be written down to. When I was 10 years, 10 years old, I wanted to read adult stories. If they were beyond my understanding, I made an effort to understand them and was probably better off for it. Paul Imrath, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. No comment from the editor. Dear Editor, sorry but you're wrong. Drugs are not youth's greatest problem. They're just one of the signs and symptoms of the illness of the country. An illness too great to be defined in one or two quick phrases, but which includes apathy, alienation, fear, and a good deal of raw hatred, among other things. You're attacking the problem, not solving it. 
You're repeating the mistakes of a society that just didn't give a damn about horse and snow. As long as it stayed in the barrios and ghettos, and now they're hitting its own chil- and now that they're hitting its own children, would rather consider them criminals and perverts rather than deal with them realistically on a human level. As long as you persist in showing us a picture of the hard uses in a daily news shocking truth manner, you are being equally unrealistic. Addicts are people, and as such need to be dealt with on their own terms, not as monsters or depraved subhuman grotesqueries. Shock value cannot be a substitute for realism in any commentary on today. What's really going on is bad enough without throwing in some nightmare fantasy as well. Steve Gallery, um, somewhere in New York. <laughs> no comment from the editor. Next letter, Green Lantern, dear editor, Green Lantern 85, Snowbirds Don't Fly, was a kaleidoscope, a procession of ungeometrical, uh, a procession of ungeometrical patterns. It was a wise and dryly humorous yet deadly tragic commentary on modern life, an examination of despair and heroism, of hubris and betrayal. While it echoed the yellow journalism of the turn of the century, it represented the awakening conscience of white middle-class America in the 60s and 70s. It presented a facet of that hideous moral cancer that is rotting our very souls, of which the arrow spoke in GL76, and was certainly the best of the series since that halcyon issue. Yet kaleidoscopes are useless playthings, enigmatic and delightful in their random infinity. Green Lantern 85 was neither useless nor a plaything. Maybe somebody somewhere won't shoot that first syringe, sniff that first package. Maybe the message here will communicate to someone to whom it will matter. The message? Heroin is death. Death. Juan Cole, Sterling, Virginia. No comment from the editor. Next letter. Dear Editor, Green Lantern Green Arrow 85 is a very realistic and moving story. It successfully attacked the problem of drugs. Naturally, there will be those who will not like this issue. There are those who think comics are nothing but escapism and therefore should not handle stories dealing with today's new problems. Comics are just now beginning to come into their own. Their potential is being utilized. Comics have mature stories about our society today without getting on a soapbox. This current story proves that. I salute you for your effort. Denny O'Neill's script is superb, except for the handling of Green Lantern. He came off as being too dumb. Everyone by now has heard of the terms term, uh, terms drugs and cold turkey. It seems ridiculous that GL could be so uncomprehending. Where has he been living anyway? His lack of knowledge is especially hard to comprehend since he and GA first set out to discover America way back in issue 76. Green Lantern has a lot to learn, but please don't portray him as being too dumb. Green Arrow also has some changing to do. His lack of compassion really bothers me. He acts too self-assured. He talks down to GL and completely tunes out to Speedy and his problem. GA is supposed to be where it's at, but surely he has not become hardened to the ills of society. I have no pity on addicts either, but they must be treated with understanding and compassion. Unless you cure the reason for turning on, you'll never be able to turn them off drugs and onto living. Green Arrow and Green Lantern both have a lot to learn. Let's hope they do it. Hopefully this incident with Speedy will cause GL to take a good long look at himself. Shirley A. Gorman, Hereford, Texas. No comment from the editor. Next letter. 
Dear Editor, may I commend you on Green Lantern 85? It was the very first of the so-called, so-called quote-unquote, now Green Lanterns that actually followed through on whatever point was trying to be made, something that has been sorely lacking in O'Neill's stories, and as such was very refreshing. However, in this story, we find two common fallacies. One, the drug problem is primarily a youth problem, and two, the predominant drugs are heroin, speed, acid, etc., the overwhelming majority of drug u- abuse, not use, abuse, is done with the following in order. One, nicotine. As I stated earlier, this is abuse, not just use. Nicotine abusers are those with severe respiratory and heart ailments in which the drug was the primary contributing factor. Two, alcohol, self-explanatory. Three, amphetamines and barbiturates, usually those prescribed by the abuser's physician. And these most abused drugs are almost exclusively used by adults, just plain folks of the sick majority. Pill popping is as much more is a much more serious drug problem than shooting junk. Do I make my point? But before I take a powder and send you this missive, let me once again congratulate you on this masterpiece, particularly the beautiful sequences on pages 4 and 5. It's been done before, but never as well. The shooting, with drugs, of GL and GA also caught my eye. For years, I've had the secret agent story in my head in which the hero gets captured and is tortured for information by being addicted to heroin and then withdrawing cold turkey. Not exactly what was done in this story, but at least I now, I know now that someone else is as creative as myself. <clears throat> Seriously, please remember what I've said. You're doing a tremendous job on one side of the drug scene, the side that probably is, admittedly, closer to most of your readers. But don't neglect the more serious problem. Oh, and hey, by the way, the drug information is straight from H-E-W. Eric Schrader, Huntsville, Alabama. No comment from the editor. Next letter. Dear Editor, I've just gotten a hold of Green Lantern Green Arrow 85 and decided that it could not go uncommented, if that's the proper word. I want to congratulate you for breaking away from this, from stories about monsters and weirdos, weirdos of fantasy and starting to expose the real monsters of weirdos of today, pushers and junkies, in that order. Now to review the details of the story. The four-time attempts and failures of GA on pages 4 and 5 to gain help until finally collapsing show the inhumanity and stupidity of this human race. It also shows that people do have to start dropping like flies before they start doing something about pollution, overpopulation, and especially drugs. The scene in which the junkie begging for stuff and the pusher kicking him out and refusing brings out a thought. They said once that the African Mao Mao tribe was cruel for killing so many, but they were uneducated and hardly knew wrong from right. The pushers, on the other hand, are mostly educated and pretty intelligent, and true cruelty is an intelligent human being with enough learning to know better, actually letting a fellow human suffer or even die just for the crummy $2 bag of junk. Then the pusher calling GL a freak is an example of the erroneous warped mind of the pusher. Page 11 showed a few of the many reasons people turn to junk. Finally, I wanted to say that I always wondered and almost knew that Speedy would get involved with drugs at some time or another. My only complaint is that now I must go through a reasonably tough hell waiting for the next bi-monthly issue. Your people are kind of cold-hearted in a way. You people are kind of cold-hearted in a way. To make us wait two months is like putting us in a living hell. Joe Morphy, Miami, Florida. No comment from the editor. 
Next letter. Dear editor, what can I say? What can anyone say? Green Lantern, Green Arrow was some, 85 was something else. In this issue, you capture the feeling, the emotion, and the realism of the drug scene. The excuses the boys give on page 11 ring with truth. Perhaps, perhaps the one thing that makes this mag is how G.A. comes on strong against drugs all through the story, and although the evidence is all around him, he can't see Speedy taking drugs. From the first, he makes excuses for Speedy, and even after Speedy tries to communicate, G.A. still refuses to see what's happening to Speedy. Strains, isn't it? How after all these months of fighting social injustices and preaching about lack of communication, Green Arrow himself becomes the victim of a social injustice and a victim of the same lack of communication he thought existed only in other people's lives. What comes next? Self-accusation? A complete breakdown? Now, you'll undoubtedly get letters comparing your story to your competitors, but let's be fair. The issue of drugs, pollution, politics, whatever it may be, can't be isolated. You can't say that because your company has done a story on drug abuse that it is the best story on drug abuse. What you can say is that here are men from both companies who are concerned enough and care enough to put aside personal gain and recognition to say what they feel. Gentlemen, I hope that the day will come when instead of competing with and belittling each other, you will join together in a mutual effort to improve the industry and promote a special kind of communication which will reach people of all ages and races and establish for us a media by which the people will be the meaning, the source, and the story. L.A. Blank Jr., Jacksonville, North Carolina. No comment from the editor. And the final letter. Dear Editor, I have to say that Green Lantern Green Arrow 85 is the greatest comics mag I have ever read, bar none. That's a strong statement to make, especially now when many DC mags are, understandably, written for the 9-13 to year old market. Of all the comics I have read dealing with the now generation and relevant subjects, issue 85 was the first one that came across as being sincere. I really felt that you guys knew what you were writing about and not just throwing out a few hip words. Congratulations on a beautiful job. Dave Nuttycomb, Rockville, Maryland. And that is the last letter portrayed in that issue. I was going to make some comments, but I feel like the comments that could be made were already made elsewhere in this episode. A lot of these people mirror a lot of the same thoughts and ideas that we ourselves had while reading these issues. So I just wanted to provide you that glimpse, that snippet of history surrounding the most important issues of the Green Lantern Green Arrow run, not only from us, but also from the readers who read it at the time. And hopefully, even if you can't see those letter, letters pages in your own copies at home, at least you have them here in audio form. So I'm going to take a quick promotional break, and when we come back, we will have a few thoughts and words and wrap-up with Ryan Daly and Mark Marble. Hello listeners, it's your friend PJ Frightful, that's PJ as in podcast jockey, and I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The podcasting hour. 
It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. Alright guys, that about wraps up this episode of Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Guys, I wanted to ask one final thing. We, we talked about a lot tonight, and I wanted to kind of get y'all's summaries, your thoughts about this series, its importance to Green Lantern, to Green Arrow, to Dinah, <laughs> to, uh, to the comics history, DC Comics, to you. It doesn't really matter what you want to touch on, but I just wanted to get your, your kind of summaries on it because I wanted to say... In one of the promos for the Lantern cast, Mark and I make a statement that Green Lantern and the history of Green Lantern is the history of the DC Universe. And we largely mean that in the fictional sense. You know, the creation of the DCU and ties to that, the closing hand and Ganthet's tale, or Krona's involvement in creating the multiverse, or the creation of the JSA, or the JLA, or anything in between. But part of that is meant in its impact to the history of comics. Because with issues like these, it's hard to decry Green Lantern as a franchise as not as important as some of the others. I think it's one of the most important franchises in DC Comics history, in comics history, for several reasons, one of which is this story. And the series. So when I say things like that, sometimes I feel alone because I'm talking to myself in a vacuum on this podcast because I largely do it by myself. So I wanted to get y'all's final thoughts on this this story, this series, its importance, what your thoughts are uh, before we close out. So, Ryan, I wanted to kick it off with you. What, what are your final thoughts on the series? I mean, I said it before, you know. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, <laughs> it wasn't a bad way to kill an evening, so that's why I'm here. <laughs> no, I, I just I I keep coming back to the uh, the end of issue 85 with with Roy going through his whole not so subtle coded monologue of why a teenager would turn to drugs, and I just want Hal to be standing behind him, sort of like skywriting with his ring. <laughs> Ollie, he's talking about you, asshole, or something like that. <laughs> get in, get in. Who's he? <laughs> Ollie, does this seem familiar at all? Um, but yeah, this is. I mean, the whole the whole length of this run. It's uh, you. You talked about in every episode. You talked about the sort of historical context and why this should be revisited. But certainly, I mentioned it at the beginning. I think. These issues in particular and the next one, 87, are kind of – they these stand the test of time a little bit longer because they've had longer ramifications for the characters and where they go. 
uh, after that. And I just think this is uh, this is a particularly special story that was particularly well told on the art and script level, even though, you know, sometimes these stories don't age well. And you can certainly say, like, in a modern context, the depictions of all the characters aren't great. Some of them come off as looking really stupid, foolish, or naive. But a story like this, I, I don't I don't know if you can divorce it from the historical context. And maybe you shouldn't. Um, it's you. I think you need to kind of read this with the understanding of what was going on in the late '60s and early '70s, and that's what you've been doing on the show. And I think that when you immerse yourself in that headspace, you see the the brilliance and the really what was really special about these stories. Because um, if you try to compare them to, it's it's hard to compare them to modern stories, but they. They do, yeah. They're they're uh, rambling. They're just really really good issues. Mark, I think <clears throat> there's no doubt these issues, this run, this series, this, the Green Lantern Green Arrow run together was obviously it's, it's historic and it's I think as Ryan said it, it's I mean it's it stands the test of time. People we still remember these stories. We still remember some of the not just the stories, the content. We remember the iconic covers and the and this during this time frame, and which is also really interesting in context when you realize that obviously the whole Ollie Hal Jordan relationship has become a lot less relevant <laughs> in modern DC, <laughs> especially as as the relationship between Barry and. And Hal has been kind of like resurrected and played up. And even I think Chad and Chad and I kind of both agree. I think we kind of both like, in a way, we kind of both like having Hal and Barry buddy buddy and pal up together in a way more than Oliver and 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 Hal anyway. But historically, you, for a long time, you would think of of Ollie and Hal being you know being best friends, mostly from this you know thanks to thanks to this run. So it's it's interesting to me that even though the the relationships and the relevance of those relationships between the two characters really has changed a lot during, you know, from the New 52 rebirth, all that stuff, that doesn't change at all the impact of their relationship here, the stories that are being told here, as we just talked about not that long ago about the comics the comics code and the and the influence it had on breaking that down and changing it forever, that is a very you know. There are lots of errors in Green Lantern that are forgettable, <laughs> and we might be in one of them now, but this is certainly one of the more memorable ones, and arguably, it's certainly, based on everything we've seen, it might be one of the ones that's, it's absolutely one of the ones that has stood the test of time the best, I think, I mean... You have Alan, you know, you have some of the original Alan Scott run. You maybe have the intro of Hal too, and may hopefully maybe some of the you could make a case about some of the Ron and Daryl stuff with uh, Kyle and even the early part of the Jeff Johns era, arguably. But this, you know, these are things that have test that have stood the test of time, and it's not just because it's a good story; it's because of what the story was trying to say and the relevance of the material. So, it's good, it's really good stuff. For sure. All right, guys. I wanted to thank both of you for joining me on this episode. Um, Mark, uh, do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, upcoming episodes of Prebirth or Lantern Cast you're looking forward to or any other projects that you're working on? 
I like that lantern cast. <laughs> that seems like a, an open door to openly... But, but we don't even know when this is going to come out, so pushing episode 300 might be pointless. <laughs> <laughs> well, if they haven't listened to it yet, they should. <laughs> That's right. Issue three, episode 300. If it hasn't come out yet, wink, wink, it will be coming out soon. Listen to it and give us feedback, uh, which is lantercast at gmail.com <laughs> or 708lantern. Other than that, really, I got nothing. Don't worry. I'll, pl- I'll plug the ways to contact the show at the oh, end. Oh, yeah, I, know. I figured. I mean, that. I figured because you're used to doing your own ending here. Uh, <laughs> other than that, I got nothing because Jim and I, we don't have a time frame yet. For we, There will be one more episode of Pre-Birth before the end of the year. I don't know entirely what what the subject matter will be, and I don't know what, if it's going to come out before episode 300 which, or not. So it will be out this year. But other than that, at the moment, no, I don't have any. Sadly, I have nothing else to promote. <laughs> Well, we do have uh, we we can't talk about it. we won't because we don't want to promise anything we can't. We do have plans. We have a bunch of stories outside of the regular issues we've oh, been talking yeah, about that I, we want to be. To me, that wasn't that was for sure. Weird. No, no, don't worry. As well as crossovers with other podcasts. Ah, what? yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. That is true. <laughs> um, so, uh, Ryan, what about your stuff? I know that you are a new father. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Congrats, on, and, and I love I love the new decorated space pole helmet. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So you're quite you're quite busy in your personal life, but uh, do you have anything you want to promote? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I have a number of podcasts available on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. They have not pod faded, but they are. <laughs> many of them are in various states of hiatus because of the stupid kid that you mentioned. Uh, <laughs> Don't, don't don't play this episode for him one day, Ryan. <laughs> don't. At least bleep out this part. Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> no, it's... Oh, um, no, um, my life! <laughs> thing, things I will mention, though, because um, I mentioned it before, it's midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm hoping to get three more episodes before the end of this year, one coming out on Halloween, one around Thanksgiving, and one around Christmas, and all sort of seasonal, you know, in nature. Um, I've got a new episode of Give Me Those Star Wars coming out soonish, based on the time that we're recording this, whenever I can get it edited. Uh, I'm hoping to get a few more episodes of that show out as the year, as we get closer to the release of a new movie. Mark, you've got an open invitation. If you ever want to come back to that show, you're welcome to. I do want to come um, back. You just got to just, you just, whenever you want me, just let me know. We, we need to find a topic and a schedule that works for it. Cool. But, um... And then also, when we can get back to it, Batman Nightcast, with that I do with Chris Franklin, he's right now just launching Superman Movie Minute podcast with Rob, so his schedule is really busy, my schedule is really busy. Uh, and then one of the reasons that I was here on this one, um, Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast, that I've got some ideas for, but I don't know if I'll get back to that until 2018. Um, and then... Uh, there are shows in the horizon, assuming I'm still living and breathing then. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can find all of those shows at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The kid has just ruined your figure and your physique. <laughs> you're, so, you're so out of shape and tired now. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Now I'm, like, I'm trying to – oh, gosh, like when I had a kid, I realized all of a sudden, like, I have to take care of myself. Like, I have responsibilities, <laughs> like, not dying. So I'm <laughs> – I'm trying to diet. I'm cutting back on and stuff, and it's just, oh man, he's changing my whole life, and it sucks so bad. 
I'm sure uh, the dog's not thrilled either. <laughs> I was the baby. Coming, coming in 2018 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Geek Parenting, the truth. <laughs> just, just, say, just say no, the Ryan Daly story. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I wanted to thank you both for coming on. I, as I've been saying all this time on this show, I am a huge fan of this series and a huge fan of these particular issues. So I've been wanting to cover them for a very long time. So I wanted to thank you guys for joining me and then <laughs> making me not speak into the ether and giving <laughs> giving giving this giving this show some well well needed direction. Is that what we did, Ryan? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it works. <laughs> we'll take the praise if we get it. And, and All right, you know guys. What, you know what? If it helped Chad feel less alone for two hours. It must be tough, like, reading those synopses and, and just to yourself wearing your robe all the time, Chad. <laughs> So what you're saying is I should turn to heroin, right? Because I feel so alone. <laughs> yeah, is that what be, you're saying? Because you'll be able to kick it in a day. So, <laughs> so what's the... All right. <laughs> well. Bokemans don't maybe, fly. Maybe I'll put this at the end of the episode. <laughs> After the credits. Well, I, we, we ended on the sincere note. How about that? Okay, uh, but Mark, if you ever get kind of a vague message from Chad that just says, you know, sometimes a younger podcaster <laughs> who, you know, feels an attachment to a slightly older one and they've been working together on a show for a long time, but they haven't doing a spinoff with another podcaster. They haven't they haven't recorded together in a while. Sometimes he feels, you know, just take a step back and think, who might he be talking about? <laughs> It's like, it's like, I, it's like I, don't, I don't have time for this now, Chad. I have to go record with Corwin. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, <laughs> all right. I guess. All right, guys. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and head into, our, head into the closing. But again, thanks so much for coming on and lending your voice to this. No problem. You're thanks for having welcome. me. All right, guys. And that will do it for this episode of the Lantern Cast Presents Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Thanks again to my guests, my usual host on the regular show, co-host Mark Marble, as well as the host of It's Midnight, the podcasting hour, as well as several other shows on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Ryan Daly, for joining me on this episode. Hope you guys got something out of it. Hope you enjoyed it, but I will not drag this on any longer. If you would like to contact us, please do so. You can be uh, calling us at 708-LANTERN for our voicemail. That is a three-minute time limit. You can send us an email, lanterncast at gmail.com. We are also available on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for LanternCast and use the hashtag GLCast if you want to communicate with us on uh, any or all of those platforms. And uh, that's going to essentially do it. Uh, last but not least, actually, if you want to, please uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us and leave us a review either on uh, iTunes or Stitcher. We are available on both, so please leave us a review uh, and uh, leave us uh, some feedback, and we'd be happy to, to read those. So thanks again so much for listening, and we will see you guys later. <laughs> ¶¶